the Augustin Hosinga Show with your host Augustin Hosinga. Smack the shit out your bitch ass midget girlfriend, nigga. <laughs> Agostino Zynga Show, episode number 675 with I, your host, Agostino Zynga. This is the Agostino Zynga Show with I, your host, Agostino Zynga. And this is episodio seis siete um, cinco. I think that's how you say it in Espanol. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, I'm right. Welcome back to the show. That's the most important thing we need to get out of the way. Welcome back to the show. I appreciate every single one of you who are tuning in right now. I appreciate every single one of you. How have I been? Pretty well, all things considered, I cannot lie. I had some very big plans for the weekend. I had some very big plans for my going out. I had some very big plans for my boogieing. I had some very big plans for my two-step, for my punching in the air. As I told some of you guys previously on the previous episode of the show, 674. If you haven't checked it out, please do. I mentioned a couple of parties I wanted to go to. Technomate and night service. Technomate in Unit 58, which is essentially North London's version of Fold. And then to go to Fold itself for night service. Two really good nights, two really good crews of people behind them, amazing people who they book, find everything that they do. Let's keep it going. But then, like an idiot, I decided to have a little bit of a midweek session. I decided to have a little bit of a midweek session. And now I've regrettably woken up from a two day or two and a half day hangover, right? Kind of a little bit feeling like it. And I've now come to the sad realization, the really sad realization that gear is just not for me anymore. I might have to just hang it all up and do it, what, once a year, twice a year when I go to Berlin or something, because I'm always out. But if I'm indoors, if I'm out and about town here in London, I just can't do it. Simply cannot. My body cannot handle it the way it used to be able to handle it before. There was times in my life Drugs aside, just for the drinks, listen to this, just from the drinks alone, the beers alone, there were times in my life from the beers alone where I used to be the master of the pregame. I would be going like, you know, I'd be leaving my house to go to the clubs and usually where I live in, you know, the part of London that I live in is very much outside of all the major cool parts of London. All the places that everyone wants to be at, I'm not there, right? So it's kind of like a little bit hard to kind of get to places. But the good thing about it is that it creates some distance and some time. So you can work on a mix, you can get on it, you can have a little bit of a smoke, and you can grab a beer. And what I'd always do, I'd love doing, especially when I, when I would go out on my bike or even just go on a bus, is that I'd walk like as far as I could and then maybe continue the journey on public transport. But I'd walk with the aim of like listening to some tunes before I'm going to the night out, grabbing a drink at every off license I stop at, aka Bodega. <coughs> <coughs> oh shit. Sorry about that. <coughs> Got some ginger stuck in my throat. So 
I would walk to every stop, right? And I would get a flipping um, beer. And this is what I used to drink only beer when I'd go out because it's the cheapest thing to drink. I didn't want to spend too much money on, on liquor. And also I had a thinking of I'd rather buy my beer cheap and then buy my liquor in a club expensive, if that makes sense. It doesn't really make sense, but that's how I kind of use it in my head. So I'd be drinking down the street and I'd legitimately sometimes I'd buy, you know, the pack of four beers they have. I'd have those four tins and I'd be necking them all the way to the next shop. And sometimes I'd get two rounds in. So I'd have four cans plus whatever I do in the club and I'd be completely fine. I'll come back home, a little bit hungover and stuff, recover after the day, back to my regular schedule programming. Nowadays, I can't even finish a four pack of beers at home. If I tried to buy those things, they, I'd have to kind of dump them in the bin. It's never happening. So that whole era of me being able to drink as much as I needed is gone. And then when it comes to the drug side of things, it's really kind of bummed me out. I'm not going to lie. Because this is me having to now understand and accept that I'm a completely different person um, physiologically. And um, I just can't handle the same amounts I used to handle before. It's probably getting to the point where I might have to just quit full time all the way through. I'm still not getting to that point yet. I don't want to accept that bit of it yet. But I have to definitely accept that I can't be having any sessions at home or any sessions in local clubs around here because most of the time the time wise isn't the best for me because i feel like personally i'm too spoiled for my trips across europe and stuff i need a good six hours to rave but then i'm also not leaving my house at 9 p.m to go and party i refuse to do that these clubs want you to get into the club before 11 p.m for free entry you can go shuck your free entry up your ass you know what i mean i'd rather pay 30 pounds and go at 1 a.m than turn up to a club at 11 p.m or 10 p.m like a donut i'm not doing that so that limits the time that I have to party. So it's basically on my own, it's my own fault. So I have like a four hour window to get, to get funky. And then I'm getting there and you're chasing the high and it's all weird and it's musty and it's not a great thing to do. So I realized that I can't essentially do it here. So I have to go do it when I go abroad. So every time I'm doing my little techno tourism stuff, that's when I'm going to get on it. But it, I have to be honest, it is quite bittersweet. I'm kind of feeling a little bit sad about it because it's the realization that I've changed. It's a realisation that I'm not the same person that I was before. And maybe part of me rethinking about it too. I was kind of meditating a little bit. I was thinking to myself, you know what? Part of the reason why I'm a little bit bummed out about this whole, like, I can't handle the same levels of drugs I used to take before. is because as much as I tell myself this narrative that I like to go to clubs just because of the vibe and for the music and for the dancing and for the culture and the scene and the music and the blah, blah, blah. Maybe... The actual reason why I was going to clubs was so I could get fucked. And maybe I never admitted it to myself. Or the other thing could be that I'm scared to find out that when I start going to the clubs more sober, I start to realize I don't really give a fuck about clubs like that. Which is weird, isn't it? I'm sure people like that do exist because I, I love the scene. I love the music. So maybe there are people who exist who just stay at home, right? And just watch streams online or, you know, check out some people's videos on Instagram and that's about it. But they don't bother. They're not really interested in going to clubs. I wonder if people like that exist. Same with concerts. I wonder if the people that exist who maybe will never go to a live music concert, but listen to a lot of music at home. So they, you know, imagine they're fans of fucking Harry Styles. They love Harry Styles, but they're never, ever going to go see him on tour. They're just going to see clips of him performing sometimes on Twitter and stuff. And that's it. That's where it goes. And then they're just going to keep moving on. Maybe that's, maybe people do that. But when it comes to clubs, I feel like with DJing and with dance music, that's why I compare it a lot to comedy and stand-up stand comedy, whatever, right? I honestly do think, right, stand-up comedy 
and clubbing are the same because a large part of how you enjoy a stand-up comedy show and a large part of how you enjoy someone's DJ set is actually being in the place, in the club, in front, around, surrounded by people who are into, into the same thing, the speakers, the smell, the ambiance, blah, blah, blah. That adds a lot to the overall experience. Legitimately adds a lot to the overall experience. Um, you, I don't think you can... Like, I don't think you can get a real grasp on somebody's funnies or somebody's ability to DJ without actually seeing them play live. My opinion, personally. Which may explain why people's, why the whole mix series thing isn't as big as it once was in yesteryears. Because people would rather go and experience these things and it's an excuse to go out. Maybe I'm thinking that. Who knows? But, for sure, at, on this moment, at this day, as we're currently speaking, which is what, May 20th, sometime in the evening over here in London, unfortunately the drugs is over for me man the sessions over here in london are over for me it's done unless i have opportunity to rave for six plus hours like i do when i go to berlin and stuff and i have to be honest like this is something that is the god's honest truth and something that is so weird to me that i still have to fucking realize it in my health but i am usually on my bestest behavior when i go out there a lot of it has to do with it being a holiday and a trip you spend a lot of money and obviously the culture around the scene over there is a lot um it's kind of hinged on your ability to behave yourself in a way because you have to get into the club first so it kind of puts you in the right state of mind you're not going there like as a lad kind of thing you're kind of going there like as a patron of the arts a patron of culture a patron of nightlife right that goes into it but legit I'm on my bestest behavior when I go clubbing in Europe, when I go clubbing in Berlin and stuff. That's the times where I'm on my bestest behavior, as opposed to when I'm here. So, um, unfortunately, that kind of bestest behavior, I feel like is a lot more, it's, it's, you know, it works better over there because there's more time to rave. It doesn't work as well over here because there's less time to rave. And honestly, my body just can't handle it. That's the long and short of it. My body just can't handle it. My body has changed for the better or for the worse. I'm going to say for the better because I do prefer it when I just had my blinkers on. I was just running 100 miles per hour, doing anything that I wanted, just knocking shit down. I'm sure it's dumb to say this, but I do. But now we're in this area we're in now. I'm working from home on a laptop. I spend most of my time in front of a desk or on the fucking laptop in bed. Do you know what I mean? Like... I how much distance am I walking day to day outside? Not much because there's not places to go unless I'm going for a weekly meeting for work or whatever. Um, running is the only time I'm really kind of doing a lot of distance in terms of steps outside and shit and getting your heart rate up only up into the gym. So there's a lot of sedentariness involved in my life. So I have to kind of insert these moments of like going out and doing things. So it's a bit annoying, that realisation, because part of it's like, okay, maybe you're going to start going to clubs and you're going to start realising, rah, man, maybe you don't like the scene or clubs as much as you thought you did. Because, you know, when you're sober and you go to nightclubs is when you really, really test if you're about this life or not. Because no one can deny being in a club or even just a bar, even just a house party, even just a family dinner surrounded by people who are fucking drunk is the, one of the worst things ever. It legitimately will fill you with dread. And you start to question your life choices. You start to, everyone around you starts to look really ugly. Especially if you're sober, you're like, ugh, get away from me. Your face is fucking drenched. Your body smells like cat piss. Like, you're just like, go away. Stay away from me, all right? But it kind of is what it is. It is what it is. I have to kind of accept it. And um, yeah, man, I got to accept it. This, this is the new me. The new casino goes out sometimes from time to time but for the most part i'm gonna be the fucking old guy in the corner with my arms crossed like criticizing people's mixes mm, i would have i would have bought the trebling a bit more there mm, lower the bass a bit too quickly mm, you know the you know what do you call it um sonically that wasn't quite right mm, 
What's this about? Hey, who's this? I'm gonna have to be one of those like chin strokers in the corner. That's who I'm gonna be now. I can't be in the middle sweating my face off on the ketamine, on the yay, on the pills, on the. I can't. I can't be that guy anymore. Especially not here in, in London. I just can't do it in the UK. I just can't do it. I can't do it, man. Body can't handle it. I need an actual ten hour plus window. Of like getting ready, having a couple of bevies like I do when I go to Berlin, walking around, going to the park, reading a book in the park, laying on the field, looking all cultural and shit and super intellectual, getting up, going to go get a fucking um, Lamushun at a local flipping Turkish spot, saying what up to the guys behind the counter. They instantly think I'm American because some reason all Turkish immigrants that live in fucking Berlin think all black people are from America, <laughs> regardless of how my accent sounds. Walk down the street, bump into other couple black boys that see me and give me the dirty look. Like, oh, I'm the I'm the only cool guy in Berlin. You can't be here. Look me up and down. Walk back to the Airbnb with my fucking bottles of beer rattling around in my little bag. Put them up in the fridge. Go out to the flipping club. Queue, waiting there, shaking, hoping the guy in front on the door is gonna think I look gay enough or queer enough or weird enough or alternative enough to let me into the fucking dance sass myself up a little bit you know and then i get in then i get in then when i get in the first thing i do is i dump my fucking coat in the fucking cloakroom and i run straight to the toilets straight to the toilets baggy open let's go that's usually when it works right because that's a good four to six hour window before i hit the clubs where i'm just revving up but if i have to go from my house to the clubs and I have to be there at 1am, or I plan to be there at 1am, I can't do it, unfortunately I can't do it, my body just doesn't allow me, and I'm absolutely bummed, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh this is the best thing that could have happened to me, <laughs> I, I, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it man, I really do, I always talk about how hard it is for adults to have hobbies, Especially now, you know, when you're older and stuff and you're not really beholden by what your friends do. I feel like when you're younger, you're kind of, your, your interests are sort of dictated by what your friends are doing because you just want to hang out with them. So if your friends play football, you play football. If your friends, I don't know, uh, like to go doing, play knockdown ginger, you play knockdown ginger. If your friends like to do graffiti, you do graffiti. So yeah, once you do get some type of hobby, has redacted. And that's really destructive as going out basically is and doing drugs and drinking is because let's be honest, it's not the best for your ears. It's not the best for your body, for your heart, for your nostrils, for your mouth, whatever you're taking your drugs, it's all not good for you. Drinking, all of that's not good for you. Everything around it, the sound, the volume, it's all bad. But, but it is still a hobby. It is something that you do outside of your work, outside of seeing friends and family that brings you joy, that allows you to connect with people. Like I've legitimately made the most friends in my adult life based. No, I've made the most friends in my adult life. Yeah, this is the thing. I think I've made my most friends in my adult life outside of streaming and doing a podcast. So big up all you guys. Um, but outside of that, it's been from nightlife. It's all been from nightlife. It's all been from getting fucked up. It's all been from being in a toilet somewhere, sharing a baggie. It's all been from being in a club somewhere, buying someone a drink, getting some shots together with some random. It's all been somewhere, being on the way to go to some fucking after hours, on the way to a forest rave, at a record store, at a fucking, you know, live performance type thing, whatever. Like, all of those things have been the only times when I've actually made quote-unquote friends. Outside of that, nah, because I don't play football as much. Um, I used to skate a lot. I haven't skated in years. 
I cycle a lot, but I'm doing it on my own with my headphones in. And the last thing I want to do is be in a crew of other cycle guys, like in in a fixed gear group with our butt shaking in the air cycling. I hate group activities anyway. So I run a lot, but I do that on my own. I fucking abhor running clubs. I think running clubs are incredibly G-A-Y. The thought of running on the street, like having a conversation. So Jill, what have you been up to? That fucking, I just want to punch people in the face that do that. Go fuck off, right? So I hate that. So every part of my life that would encourage me to find friends or go with people, I generally kind of pull away and do on my own. Same goes for the fucking, um, you know, street wear and fashion shit. I don't really attend events like that like I used to because I don't really like the people in the scene. I kind of like to enjoy it from afar like a, like, a, like a consumer. I'm not really bothered about being involved and stuff and being part of it and all that malarkey. It's not really for me. So everything that I could find friends, I don't. So... Naturally, <laughs> this whole situation has made me feel kind of bummed out. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I have to kind of admit and just own up to it. This is where I'm at in the, at the moment. Um, it's not going to change anytime soon. It probably isn't ever going to go back. That's one thing we can flip in, except um, the same as technology. Once your fucking life goes one way, it's very difficult for it to go back to the other way. And um, yeah, I think that was a good era for me. I'm not going to lie. I had, I had a lot of fun back then. Going to like, you know, I'd be out from like Thursday to Sunday when I used to DJ, when I used to fucking, no, when I, when I, when I was DJing a lot, sorry, not when I used to, when I, when I was DJing a lot, um, when I was putting on raves and stuff, I'd be out like legitimately Thursday to Sunday every single day, which makes me think that I don't think I could do the the stuff that I'm doing now when it comes to like, you know, the content shit the same level i honestly couldn't because i was going out so often like that was my only thing that i did going out going out but i was also still working quite a bunch as well so that's quite that's pretty cool in that regard i was working a bunch i was going out a bunch but at the end of the day you can only do that for a certain period of time you can't do that forever and um obviously in this case that i'm in now at the moment it's suddenly come to a screeching halt and now i know if i do want to go out um, it's going to be have to be the Berlin stuff because that's the only time that I've actually had legit fun in terms of going out because, like I said, there's a lot more time to do stuff. I'm not rushed and I can just kind of take my time with it and ease it in. But the days of me being able to sesh at home, go out and stuff are gone. And it was really disappointing the other day because I legitimately had big plans. I was going to go and go to this fucking party at fucking Unit 58. I had all this thing worked out. I had my bike. I was going to go cycle to Unit 58. I was going to then go there for like, you know, two hours or three and then bounce over to Fold and do that shit. Come back with a scene report, tell you how it was and whatnot, um, who I liked, who I didn't like and whatnot. But, you know, after a little session midweek, I was like completely ruined. And I've only just fucking recovered. I'm like, God almighty, man. And that was absolutely nothing. Like, honestly, nothing. I just can't understand how this has happened. It's really, really disappointing, and I'm really sad, but it kind of is what it is. This is a situation I'm in at the moment. I have to go through it. I have to go with it, but yeah, man, um, this is where I'm at at the moment. So if you are if you are in the current situation that I'm in at the moment or you're feeling the same, all I have to say to you is the quicker you accept that your body and you as a person has changed, the better. I feel like uh, putting it off is usually going to lead to... Uh, some further heartache that's probably not needed just accept it it is what it is and try to make the best of it and replace things 
um, in your life with other things or just accept your new life anyway. I think that's another thing as well. I'm thinking. I'm sitting here thinking I need to replace um, the drugs with something else, but maybe you just ex- you just accept what it, what it is without it. You don't need to replace. That's just like a chronic like Taipei type of thing, and you just have to have something going. And that's something I used to do a lot as well because I used to have really. That's the whole point of this podcast. That's why this podcast basically started. That's why I actually started making content online because I'd listen to podcasts all the time, especially Joe Rogan and Bill Burr type stuff. And I'd be listening to people talk all the time, constantly. And there's a period of time where I remember I never would have, it would never be dead air in the background. There'd always be music or something happening. Something talk, something, someone speaking, a YouTube video, a podcast or music, always something in the background. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, the reason why I'm doing this, I, why I realized was that at the time I was doing a lot of self-speak, a lot of like ranting and raving, like just, you know, chronic self-speak. Because I, I guess at the time I was very frustrated where my life and my choices and career-wise where I was and blah, blah, blah. I was just getting really fucking annoyed with it. And I guess in a way to kind of like psych myself out and in of states, I would have this weird self-talk about the things I was going to do, the things I was going to say, the things I was going to be doing in the future what i was going to achieve all these things i was getting i was giving myself all these fucking rah-rah speeches right these rah-rah gary v speeches in my head and i realized oh this is what a podcast is <laughs> it's essentially a mental illness a podcast essentially is a form of mental illness especially a solo pod like the one i'm doing a solo podcast is a form of mental illness that you would sit here turn a camera on and just be ranting and raving about nonsense shit or in this case rambling um thinking that anybody cares this is a form of mental illness. So I thought, okay, cool. If I've got a mental form of mental illness, I'm at least going to make it somewhat productive. I'm at least going to make it somewhat worthwhile. I'm at least going to make it um, somewhat interesting. So let's turn on the camera and let's fucking record. And that's why I basically started shit like this, just because of that self-speak. So as much as the it's kind of killing me at the moment that, you know, the drugs part of my going out has kind of gone, it's also maybe just part of change and part of what it is and maybe along the way i'll find other ways of enjoying how i go out maybe along the way i'll find out that i don't really like going as much as i thought i did who knows but one thing is for certain it does set me up really well for when i open my own club when i open my own club if nightclub eventually right one of the things that i was thinking i was like oh shit how can i open my own nightclub if i'm like super in you know what i mean if i'm like super in if i'm like if i'm like indulging in the effects of nightlife like, how could I do this? And now I'm knowing that I'm, you know, changing as a person and becoming a little bit more mature, I guess in some respects. That's that's a good omen. That's a good sort of like, uh, that's a good little starting place to come from before opening a club that I can be a little bit detached from it. I could operate it, I could run it and operate it like an actual business person and not just look at it as a place, opportunity to kind of like, <laughs> to have a, a, a basically a place where you can get fucked up and also, and book people that you like. No, it's actually going to be a business. It's going to be an amazing club. It's going to be one of the best in the world and people are going to love it. And I'm also going to operate it, you know, from like a point of view of actually being a business owner as opposed to being somebody just, you know, lost in the source and shit. So it kind of is what it is, I guess. Um, I have to just accept it for what it is. I'm really, really, um, you know, a bit, it's a bit of sweet time we're in at the moment. But, you know, what can you do, man? What can you do? What can you do? We just have to kind of let it roll. Let it fucking roll. We can't be crying about these things. You know, you got to let it roll. But yeah, let me just quickly mute the mic so I can quickly um, blow my nostrils. Bear with me one second, though. Let's go! 
Let's go. Agostino is getting old. The things I used to do, I can't do anymore. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh, it sucks so bad, man. It sucks so bad. But again, to be fair, that's what I get. It's my fault for making part of my personality going outside. Going to clubs, sorry. It's not my full personality. I'm not out there in fucking body harnesses and shitty PVC pants and shit. I'm not doing that. But it was a big part of my personality, you know, for a long time. Like, if, you, if you've if you been around parts of East London, you know, right? My name was ringing out there in these streets for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> my name was ringing in these fucking East London streets for a very long time. In these hipster adjacent East London, South London, parts of North London streets, my name was ringing. If you needed somebody that had a pocket full of MDMA, come to fucking Agostino. Go to that guy Agostino. He's got fucking... Uh, I'm, I, I, that, those times I used to win M65. He's got an M65 pocket load, loaded full of MDMA in each pocket. However much you want. You know that famous interview with Lil Goddard where he's like, to the, to the interview, do you want a perk? That was me. Do you want a... <laughs> do you want a tab? <laughs> Ah, that was me. That was me, bro. Do you want a bump? Do you want a bump? What's a bump? What's a bump? Blood. Honestly, man, I was out here fucking handing people bear shit. But the funny thing about it back then, right? The funny thing about it, and I think that's something you have to kind of realize when you get older. I was that chronic guy that was tr- basically being a bit of a people pleaser with the drugs and stuff outside. And thinking back at it, right, I was like, I'd, I'd have so much shit on me giving to people, and I remember. I'd never really got the same amount back. So people would be coming to me for like free shit all the time, but they'd never give it back. You'll never come back. And again, I never did shit for like, you know, I never did shit so it could be uh, reciprocated in that way. But it is quite a common thing. The guy or girl who doesn't pay for weed and always wants to smoke is also not the person who's going to give you some weed when they have some. It's just always going to be you giving it. So, so... Be very careful if you're that person. If you're that good time person that's always bringing the drinks, always bringing the beers, always bringing the gear, be very careful because you won't realize it because everyone's having a good time with your shit and you feel happy about it. Because sometimes if you're that kind of person, you feel good about making other people feel good, so you don't really care. But usually those people will take a piss out of you. They're taking the piss of it. They're going to take advantage of you completely. And they're going to just, you know, you're going to feel, you're going to look back and they feel a little bit used, which I did. I feel a little bit used. I'm shaking right now. <laughs> I'm legit shaking. <laughs> but yeah, big up everybody in the stream chat. Big up every single one of you. Appreciate you for tuning in. Um, yeah, I just had to open my heart out, out there. Just let you guys know that I realized that I'm turning into a square, man. Everything I keep saying about being a normie and raging on normies and shit. I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a normie myself, mate. I'm becoming a bit of a normie. It's like that quote in it, right? You stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss starts staring back at you. That's what I'm starting to be. Agostino the normie. Oh, yuck. Agostino the normie. No. Anyway, big up the stream chat. Uche, what are you saying? My, my British friend were just reminiscing yesterday of all the fuckery we did and Cayman Islands. It's good to live life, but the party has to stop eventually. Exactly, Uche. Exactly, Uche. Exactly. Exactly, Uche. The party has to end eventually. And you know what's really cruel about that quote? 
the cruel thing about that quote, because I saw some of you guys saying it before. When I was playing that video of Ricardo Villalobos and Luciano, I was glancing across the chat and I didn't want to read it because it was breaking my heart. But a few of you guys were like looking at it and you were kind of disgusted. <laughs> You're like, these old guys behind the booth, like dancing and shaking. So I was looking, I was thinking, you know, and I watched it again this morning. I was like, you guys were kind of right. There are some, those old dudes behind the booth DJing isn't as cool it's not as cool to other people as it's cool to me. You know, I find it really cool, but I understand if you're a, if you're like a person that's not a regular person that doesn't really care about clubs like I do, you can look at guys who are in their fifties DJing in clubs fucked up. It doesn't really look the greatest, does it? So the cruel thing about the party has to end eventually. What Uche said there in the chat is that, you know what the cruel thing is about it? If you don't choose to end the party, the party will choose to end it for you eventually. Either you choose to voluntarily calm down and go from being at the front of the fucking party, right in front of the booth, to being in the middle, to being on the side, to being right at the back like I am now. Usually from my fold, if you've ever been to fold before, it's one of my favourite clubs here in London. And the one place you can always find me in fold is usually under the air conditioning. Because it's the only place that's kind of cool. I remember some kid on some kid on one of the video clips I clipped up on the fucking channel said something to me like, shit, um, you're definitely old as fuck when you start um, complaining about how cold it is in a club or something. I think I said something like that in my review. And I was like, ouch, man, ouch. Like, but he was right anyway, because that's where I'm always at in the clubs. I'm very rarely in the middle. Like how I used to be, like getting fucked in the middle. I'm um, usually on the sides, like with my own space, because Fold had this really nice little platform on the side you can stand on, where all the kind of hot, cool gay guys are on with their tops off, and that's me with my fucking big ass in between them, right? <laughs> so I'm either there or I'm under the air conditioning at the back. So that's where I'm always at anyway. So eventually the party has to end in that regard, because you have to kind of go from the front to the back. But if you keep staying at the front, if you're an old man or an old woman out there and you keep staying at the front, Eventually, the party will end for you because the the kids around you will be, will be annoying you, which are not annoying you. They're just being young. And eventually, they'll push you to the back. So it's either you voluntarily walk to the back, figuratively, figuratively speaking, sorry, or the kids push and elbow you and side to side stomp you out to the fucking sides, right? And you start feeling inadequate. You start getting bitter. You start getting hateful. You start saying like all these other old fucks on social media, complaining about the kids. They play the music too fast. It doesn't have any groove. It's just boom, boom, boom. No, you old fuck. It's not the music. It's you. You're expired. You're tired. Step away from the front. Go and listen to some minimal. Go and chill out and listen to some ambient shit. Whatever you need to do. Or just go to the raves like I do and stand at the back. But I really did understand it, honestly. When you guys were saying it at the time, I didn't want to speak about it because it was breaking my heart. But I did truly understand when looking back at it, when I showed this clip here on screen, <clears throat> where some of you guys were looking at it thinking, thinking, this isn't the most attractive thing in the world. This doesn't actually look cool as it does. Because both of these guys, Ricardo Villalobos and Luciano, as featured in this video from Luca Dia, I'll take a sign off here. They're like in their 50s, right? So seeing this video of these guys in their like 50s or whatever, um, raving, dancing, having a good time <laughs> behind the booth. It was kind of a bit of a wake up call of like, okay, cool. As amazing as it is, legendary as I think they are, there is a part of it where you're like, don't you get tired? Don't you just want to be at home with your kids and shit? Don't you want to be on a lake somewhere fishing? Don't you want to be building furniture or at all the very least designing club, clubs, interiors and shit? Isn't that a more better place to be than to try and be in the middle of the dance with all these other people? Maybe, maybe not. But one thing for certain, 
I'm definitely not going to be that person still flipping getting on it in these clubs, you know, in, in the ages that these guys are at. If I'm in a club, I'm there to, you know, muck around, have a good time, dance and shit, but I'm definitely not doing it to get absolutely trolley because unfortunately my body can't handle it. And also I just think it's lame. I'd much rather choose when to kind of bow out gracefully out of that part of my life. I don't want to, you know, have the rave choose it for me. That's what I don't want. I want to choose when to end it. And I think this is the perfect time because at the moment, like I said before, getting on it at home, getting on it on a casual one, going to clubs and stuff, that's already breaking me. But if I go out to other places around Europe where they've got, you know, longer hours opening times and i'm able to go like you know when i go home i'm like an old man literally i'll go to berlin i'll sometimes stay remember the first four hours i go out there i'll be out there in berlin for the first four hours in Berghain. i've not taken i've not had a sim a single sip of alcohol or done any drugs or anything i'm just literally enjoying the vibe speaking to randoms and dancing right having a good time and then by that time i'll be a bit tired i'll go out get some food i'll, I'll eat i'll sleep until like nine in the morning, wake up, go back to the club again, right? And then, then I'll start going a bit crazy then. But still, I'm able to handle it because I'm having little naps and little breaks. I told you already. I told you there was a time. Um, I told you there was a time, right, where I used to... No, there was a time... No, hold on, what was someone saying? Sorry, let me, before I remember. What's Natashki saying here? Natashki saying, no, it's not the music. I've never liked straight oops oops music since I was young. That's almost embarrassing. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair. To be fair, I, I, I understand it. I understand it. It's, it's been a part of me and what I've been into for a long time. And I think for me personally, my story of coming into like dance music, electronic music has to do a lot with like how I was kind of brought up in the area that I lived in because I kind of felt a little bit closed in and I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things and stuff until I got older. I felt like going to clubs was like an escape from my regular day-to-day life. It allowed me to kind of have another another place to kind of dream and explore and blah, 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 you know? So when I see clubs, I see them more as a form of um, literal escapism as, a, as opposed to seeing it purely as a place to just be there, like dancing and shaking my body all around. It's not always to do with that. It's sometimes it's just to be an escapism, have a good time, enjoy myself, and then kind of go from there. Personally, personally, personally. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. I get it now. I get it. Look, I get it. Look at the video, how it can look for some people from the outside looking in. You know what I'm saying? Because for sure, um, it can look a bit weird from the outside looking in. It could definitely look a bit weird. Because I guess. Uh, the unfortunate no the unfortunate part of dance music as well unless you state it yourself most people just assume that you're only going out to get fucked up that's the only bad thing i think about dance music especially in the uk maybe in europe it's different because they have a little bit more of an outside festivaly club culture so it's kind of seen as part of your daily life it's not to uh, not it's not it's not it's not like it's not an uncommon thing to see like you know regular finance guys in spaces to spain france and whatever maybe um going out to clubs getting fucked up and then going right back to work on a monday it's not that big of a deal but maybe here it's definitely seen as a bit of a crazy crazy one isn't it maybe it's seen as seen a bit of a crazy one i'm not really sure but hey it is what it is what can we do what can we do what can you do what can we do we have to kind of let it keep going what have you saying chat crash 984 <laughs> ah, <laughs> fuck you fuck you crash <laughs> midlife crisis stream <laughs> that's a good point actually i just realized like, i just looked at the timer i've been ranting <laughs> about this for like 30 minutes <laughs> midlife crisis stream confirmed 
Yeah, big up Crash. Thank you for the super chat. Oh. <laughs> All right, cool. We'll leave it there then. It is what it is. What can we do? It is what it is. Um, I realize it can't be sessioning as much as I want it to be. It is what it is. Um, what are we going to say here? Uche's asking me, would I ever go to an event like this sober? Yeah, I would. I've been there a lot of times sober. Like um, the the one of the couple times I went to Berlin or Berkheim recently, actually. I, I told you the story about Berkheim when I went to Berkheim and, and I fell asleep in the dark room. Did I tell you that? So I got tired, right? So I just got tired. So, you know, there's, there's loads of dark rooms in Berlin. And what, there's one specific dark room that's like in, there's like these, it's these cubes. These cubes that are like elevated platforms. No, there's a cube. It's got like an elevated seating area with like a, like a big cushion. And obviously you can close the curtain if you want to, but it's just open. So I just, I was just in there on my phone in, in Berlin, in Bergheim, right? Just, you can still listen to the music because the sound system's amazing, but I was just on there on my phone. And I guess I was so tired. I didn't realize how tired I was. I think I got one of those horrible flights where I left my house at like 6 a.m. in the morning. Which meant I didn't wait. I didn't sleep the night before. So I got there with zero sleep. I got changed. I had some food. I went straight to Bergheim. And I got there. I guess my body just died on me. I didn't even drink. I didn't even do any drugs. I did nothing. I think I might have had like one beer. If that. And I think the beer was actually next to me. And I was sitting on the dark room chairs on my phone. And I just fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep on my own. And I guess someone noticed. No, someone noticed. And then they got the security guards to come because I think at the time that was when they were having that GHB spike incident stuff, right? So I guess they were worried and thought I got spiked with GHB or that I had an overdose. I don't know what they're worried about. So I was sleeping and I remember just like someone touching my leg. I woke up and then um, all I see is some big security guard from Burger and they're always big and muscly and shit, intimidating looking, but always really nice. And he was holding my phone up like this and my phone was all cracked. I was like, oh shit. So I guess while I was sleeping, my phone must have dropped on the floor. And somebody really nice must have picked up my phone and put it on me or something. Like, imagine. Like, imagine how crazy it is. I'm in a dark room. I sleep. My phone out. Um, the security guard wakes me up. and like, are you all right? I was like, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm all right. And I guess they noticed straight away. They could tell by my face because, you know, these guys work in clubs. They know when somebody's high. I clearly wasn't high. I was just literally tired. I woke up and like, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I just, I must have just fell asleep. And I looked at the time now. I think I was asleep for like two and a half hours or some shit. Like in the dark room of fucking Bergheim. And then they're like, are you sure? You're, you're right to continue. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm a bit tired. I'm going to go. And I was like, okay, no worries. And then um, I think um, one security guard came in. I think someone from like the head office or something was in there. I was like, okay, it's fine. No worries. Are you, are you sure? Okay. I said, like, yeah, I'm perfectly fine. I just grabbed my shit and I went home. And I think that's what I started to realize. Damn, I'm falling asleep in nightclubs. <laughs> I'm falling asleep in nightclubs. This must mean it's the end. We're fast approaching the end. So yeah, I I fell asleep in Bergheim. Um, I've been to places like Berlin. I've gone out to London plenty of times sober. I don't actually enjoy it. Don't get me wrong, but I've done it and it's fine. It's not a big deal. But I'm also a bit worried that if I start doing it, I'll start to quickly realize that maybe I don't like his clubs as much as I thought I did. But let's wait and see. Wait and see. Anyway, moving on. So I'm not sure how much you guys know, but there's been a really funny thing happening at the moment with um, that restaurant called Horses, right? Which I mentioned beforehand in LA, where they're going through this crazy scandal where um, one of the chefs behind Horses LA has been accused of um, by his you know, by his ex-wife, because they're currently going through divorce, that allegedly the cats that they were taking in are strays. And uh, from what I've been hearing on the ground level, um, a lot of restaurants do this. Um, restaurants do this if they have mice. If you have mice issues in your restaurants um or whatever you usually get mice or rats whatever it may be you usually get cats in 
to your restaurant and they will kind of act as a, you know, um, in-house security team to get rid of your rats and your mice problem. And this restaurant did the same thing. But over time, it just became, you know, like a cat restaurant. They, they had some cats themselves in their home. And I guess over the, over the years, over time, the wife started to realize that a lot of the cats were dying and she couldn't re- figure out why. She had some suspicions because her husband, I guess, was somewhat violent. And then one time, she must have walked into, she must have walked in on the husband having a wank and also strangling a cat at the same time, which is fucking wild. And um, this has been happening, whatever. And it's been a big news on social media because this restaurant called Horses is a very popular hipster restaurant. And this woman decided to put this tweet out, really interesting hot take, called Helen Rosler. And she said the following, <clears throat> restaurants shouldn't be cool. Coolness in a restaurant is a red flag. And I think I have to somewhat agree with it I think she's mostly speaking about it from like the point of view of like, <clears throat> if a restaurant has a queue around the block, I'm not going to queue. If you have to fucking, you know, <clears throat> submit an application to eat somewhere, it's lame. I understand what she means. But it's also from coming from the point of view of like, if you never get invited to the cool restaurants, or if you don't know about them before they open or whatever, before they're popular, you kind of feel a little bit out of the loop. And to kind of help you cope with it, you have these takes. But then there's also been a counter take. <clears throat> And a counter take I heard from Chris Black on How Long Gone Podcast, who said something that I thought was absolutely insane. But I've seen other people agree with it, which I think is nuts. Some people say restaurants should be cool. If a restaurant isn't cool, what's the point of going there? And I legitimately can't understand how that makes any sense. Because by definition, a restaurant should be reviewed and kind of revered because of the food. If the food isn't good, why the fuck are you going to a restaurant? I would never go to a restaurant just because it's cool. You're going there because of the food. Now, if it happens to be cool, if it happens to have a cool ambiance, um, interesting architecture, some interesting people doing interesting things with food who are behind it, um, in an interesting place, to, you know, attraction, a cool, you know, uh, group of people who like to eat there on a regular, whatever, fair enough. But the point of going to a restaurant, it has to have good food. Is it known for its steaks? It's smashing it. Known for its burgers, they're great. Has great pizza, has great pasta, has great salads, desserts, whatever. But it always starts with the stuff that's going in your mouth. Not because, you know, I'm not going to a restaurant because they are known for playing Playboy Carty really loud on the speakers. I'm not going for the restaurant because they have fucking Miller, you know, fucking um, seating and shit. And they have really amazing architecture and interior design everywhere around the place and cool pieces of artwork. I'm not going to a restaurant just because the founder behind it happens to be one of the coolest people in the world. No, you go there in part because it's cool, but primarily because it's a really nice restaurant. And the reason why... The reason why... (laughs) Fuck you, Eric C. The reason why it makes me angry and pissed off this sort of shit because it reminds me why some restaurants i've never gone to a good example of it in england we have this restaurant called rita's and this restaurant called rita's is known you know it's known for i think they do like tacos and shit or whatever something else but they used to make really good cocktails they really got good food and they've got a new restaurant now in soho but rita's i think before might be called pamela's or maybe it's called pamela's now one or the other rita or pamela's right this restaurant here in london actually let me see if i can get it up here on the screen rita's london oh it is so yeah it's still here there we go rita's london right this restaurant is really 
cool and everyone fucking loves it the founders behind it are pretty cool i guess in some respects if you look at them that way um i kind of grew up not grew up around some of the people that were involved in this when i was going in the east london scene but this is the this is the this is the this is the flip side of having a cool restaurant if you have a cool restaurant like this right you have to the people behind it have to be cool but they also have to be very likable and unfortunately, for me only, and again, this is just my own personal experience. I know nothing about these people outside of the restaurant. I've not even met the other person, but I've met one of the persons. And this main guy in the restaurant, the one with the beard, I don't know what his name is, but this main guy with the restaurant who does Rita's is incredibly unlikable. Very cool person, but I never liked the guy's attitude. He just came across like a bit of a cunt. Like proper, proper wanker vibes. And this was back in the day when me and my friend used to do um, this party in, in East London called So Special. This, we do it in this uh, club called uh, The Alibi. And this guy was friends with one of the founders of The Alibi. So I used to see him in there all the time. Never spoke to him. Never said one word to him, I don't think, in the entire time I've been around there. But he just gave me a vibe of somebody that thought he was better than people. I never understood that side of things. It's like, you're no better than all of us. You're in the same fucking dingy basement bar like we are. You can't be better than anybody because because you're sitting over there, you're standing over here. It doesn't matter what jacket you've got and we're all the same people, especially if we're drinking in this hellhole of a fucking pub. But he was always a bit of a prick, in my personal opinion. Now, because of that, I've never visited Rita's because I'm not giving money to somebody who I don't like just because of what, what they look like or how they come across and act it just is what it is i'm not that kind of guy um if i'm not into something i'm if i'm if i don't like the people doing the stuff they're doing i don't like supporting the stuff that they're making which means for the most part i have sometimes a tough time sometimes making sure that i don't meet people that do stuff that i like because i don't want to meet you and you're a cunt and now i have to kind of stop doing back in what you're doing the same thing happened with palace i was a big fan of the brand when it started i had a really bad one-off interaction with a couple people behind this brand and then i've never worn the brand since then and you know they can they can they can go they can fucking die i fucking hate them all so because of that i don't wear it so the cool stuff can have two folds if you don't like the people behind it and it's cool you're not going to go there because you don't want to give cool cunts money but if it is cool you're going to go there because it's cool and then it doesn't matter if the food's good but i can't legitimately in my head justify or figure out why anybody with a brain would want to go to a restaurant just because it's cool. It sounds legitimately redacted. And that maybe is a a symptom of the times that we're in. That some people just generally... I guess, I wonder if it extends to music. Would you listen to music that's terrible just because it's cool? It's actually way cooler, I think, to have your own mind, to think for yourself, and be like, you know what? Because everybody thinks this is cool, I'm not going to like it. And have the kind of, you know, to be a contrarian in that regard, I think it's a much cooler place to be, to come from. As opposed to being the guy that's always jumping on the bandwagon of liking stuff or loving or hating stuff because of what it is. But then a part of me also thought to myself, as much as I dislike the guys, you know, behind Rita's and stuff, and, you know, that chef really pissed me off in terms of his attitude. I was, I was meditating a little bit. I was thinking to myself, maybe that wasn't even personal. Maybe it was me as well. I don't know how I come across with some people. I could come across like a bit of a cunt and a prick and unlikable. I understand that. But also it made me think to myself, I don't know many people behind restaurants. I go to restaurants and eat because I like to go and eat at restaurants. I review them how I want to review them and I kind of step away. I think I actually used to do um, a couple of reviews. I'm not sure if I still have them on my blog, but I had a couple of reviews that I would do on my blog just for myself, whatever. 
but I'm generally not doing them for anybody to like give me free meals or shit. I don't want to get involved in it. I just want to just eat at the places I love and I've seen across the way and then kind of keep it moving. That's all I want to do in that regard, right? I'm not really looking at it any deeper than that. But then it made me think a little bit about restaurants in, in general and about chefs. And I remember hearing people say who are involved in the industry and behind the scenes that all chefs are kind of cunts. Like, it doesn't matter. They all kind of have a bit of a, you know, an attitude. They all kind of have a bit of a superiority complex. And it might just be a, a kind of a symptom of working in that industry. Fast-paced, um, really stressful, long hours. Um, you know, the success rate of restaurants isn't the greatest either. So, so you can understand why sometimes if you want to be a successful chef or a restaurateur, you kind of have to have a bit of a, a shield, a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a screen in front of you. You kind of have that, that bit of temperament. And it's usually I'd imagine if you're working in these places night and day, it's very difficult to kind of turn that shit on and off. Sometimes, even if you're, if you're off day and you're not working, you just still have that kind of anger in you, that kind of cunty vibe about you. Cause that's what I remember feeling with that guy the couple of times I kind of bumped into him. Like this guy comes across like a bit of a cunt. But it's just like something that's kind of deeply ingrained in him from his soul that he has something about him I just don't like. I'm not going to speak to you. So I've never did. And I legitimately don't even know what his voice sounds like. That's how deep it is. So I'm sure that interaction was not personal. I'm sure that vibe that I felt wasn't anything that was specific to me. And I'm sure it had more to do with just people that work in restaurants. And, you know, it just is what it is. But I'm also not in the business of ever licking anybody's ass, especially somebody who's trying to act like I need to. That's always going to turn me off. I'm never, ever going to have a good time with that shit, you know? Um, I'm actually looking back at my fucking blog and looking back at some old posts I've got in here. I've got a post here of my experience of when I went to fucking Bergheim in 2020. And this is a good example of like where my vibe was and how much, you know, at what kind of current, you know, at what sort of, uh, what's that thing called? Um, at what sort of frequency I was vibrating on. Look at these pictures. There's a picture of me standing in a queue. There's a picture of a plant pot inside my Airbnb. There's a picture of crates and crates of beer that I probably purchased at one of the rivers somewhere because you can just pick up the entire thing and buy them there. There's a picture of me carrying a bag of little, and I think this is some you know groceries and some you know a little fruit juice there. There's a picture of me taking a selfie of myself in a fucking window with a, my good New York boots on and my little custom denim pants on and my black bomber jacket right like that looks like a picture run of somebody that was getting fucked up none of these pictures make sense <laughs> they're all very varying levels of quality <laughs> but one thing you can tell from these pictures is that i was getting lit that's for sure you can tell i was feeling myself you can tell i was getting lit you can tell i was having a good time legitimately nowadays you see pictures of me going outside number one there's rarely any and it's not, it's, they're kind of coherent. They tell a coherent sort of story as to how the day's events kind of progressed. But now, looking back at this, I'm like, damn, son. You used to be the man, son. Now you're washed up, son. <laughs> it kind of is a bit bittersweet to take to. But anyway, let me see if I can see it. Um, let me see. I've got some food reviews here. I'm pretty sure that I did back in the day. Let me see if I can find it because... 
most of my food reviews just happen to be me basically going to yeah there we go random places in around you know whatever and just kind of reviewing shitty food that i love to eat look at this me reviewing a restaurant called um olive C lemon cafe it's not really a restaurant it's probably like a fry up and you know taking a good picture there of the fry up and reviewing it imagine me giving a plate of food maybe you shouldn't trust my opinion on restaurants if i'm taking pictures of baked beans hash browns bacon sausage mushroom and eggs and giving it a 7 out of 10. <laughs> you can't be taking my review of food that seriously and my review of restaurateurs and chefs and how they run their business when I'm the person, right, who's reviewing fry-ups and giving them a 7 out of 10. Maybe you shouldn't be taking my opinion seriously. Maybe, just maybe. <laughs> uh, let me let me read this. This is this is my review from Lemon. Uh, oh my god, look how long that review is. Fucking now, how long was I on fucking crack writing this shit? Um, let's just read it here. It says, um, DJing can be stressful at times. I spend most of my evenings during the week glued to my laptop screen, desperately trying to come up with a new hour of music in preparation for a gig on Friday or Saturday night. The gig itself is fairly straightforward, especially if I've done the necessary work beforehand. But there are times, however brief, when I'm heading into the fourth hour of my DJ set where I think to myself, is all this work, is all this work worth the squeeze? Yo, I was fucking struggling with life and issues and shit from 2018 in it i've always been a bit of a mental case cool good to know continues uh and you know what it is especially in the morning after you try and figure out where you're gonna have a fry up aka a full english breakfast you wake up bleary bleary eyed and still relatively drunk but somehow find a way of locating several breakfast cafes within five to ten minute walk distance to spend your hard-earned dj money on it's one of life's truly magical moments i can guarantee you that <laughs> olive and lemon cafes okay just outside the shopping mall a couple doors before the big weather spoons with ample seating outside where most of the patrons <laughs> i'm calling people who sit outside of a fucking fry up patrons honestly i'm tapped um or the patrons were located even though it was minus um zero degrees outside we decided to sit out indoors um, we didn't have to wait long for one of the attentive waitresses to come over to our table and give us a menu, which was fairly straightforward. Thank God. The breakfast menu was uh, sat alongside various baguettes, chibatas and wraps. I went for the full breakfast because I'm a man. And but more importantly, <laughs> because I was hungover as fuck and desperately needed as much as carbs as I possibly can order in order to land of the living. Um, the brunette went for the Mediterranean. I was quite surprised when my plate arrived. Instead of a large porcelain, white covered, greasy, fried goodness, I was presented with a fairly stripped back and dare I say clean plate of food. Imagine me calling this plain. Honestly, my head is absolutely gone. As you can tell from the picture above, everything looked tasty and tasted fresh the mushrooms were surprisingly nice i was also ordered a plate of chips because why not and they were perfectly cooked with the addition of some himalayan sea salt provided for free on each table delightful my only gripe were the eggs they weren't cooked as well as i liked which i probably should have stated and i only got one instead of two and although the sausage was really tasty overall for six pounds including the coffee and two bits of toast i was thoroughly satisfied and i'm more than happy to visit again jesus christ <laughs> okay maybe don't listen to me when it comes to reviews of food because i'm i'm reviewing fry-ups without any hint of irony and thinking i'm legitimately doing something 
Oh my god. But anyway, let's continue here. I, I think I've got one more good one actually here. Um no we got the fucking me talking about my Tom Sachs. Look how good they used to look back there. Where's the review of food? I'm pretty sure I've got oh actually, is it called Munchdat? I think it's called Munchdat. Let me search on there. It should be called Munchdat. I've got a whole list of fucking reviews on here that I, I deemed under the code of Munchdat. So it should be all on there. Let me see. Yeah, there we go. See? There we go. Okay. So we've got, yeah, let's try. Look at this. See? This is when I went to LA. Now I remember when I went to LA. I went to LA in 2015. So I got my review of um, In and Out Burger in 2015 here. Heavily edited, um, you know, tonal view of the fucking burger and chips over there in and out. But I really, honestly, this is one restaurant that I'm hoping that this is the one thing that I miss about America. In and out, or so delightful, so tasty. Coming from somebody, you know, in in the UK at the time, our burger scene wasn't as great as it probably is now. It's probably the best it's ever been now. There's really good burgers out there, but there was a time and period of time where, but In and Out burgers wasn't. No, in and out burgers was the pinnacle of burgers and i remember my first time going there in it when i went to la and i, I think i went to la yeah 2015 for the camp vlog now um tyler the creators festival and obviously i also went to the laugh factory and the first thing i did when i went to la was to go to in and out that was the first fucking thing i did and legitimately it blew me away how fucking tasty that burger was the one thing that was horrible was the fucking fries the fries are like cardboard and then i found out what is it again they cook the fries in like is it like peanut oil or something no why why are they made like that i'm not sure if you guys remember in the chat if you could tell me la there's a reason why the the, the, the fries in in and out are really bad i think it's something to do with the how they cook them or how they i don't know regardless they're really terrible they're disgusting but the burger the burger is fucking amazing I could have four of them back to back. Like next time I go to LA, I actually won't actually get a double double. I'll get probably a single patty so I can spread the meat across and, you know, pause and I don't have to fucking get too full. I'll probably be able to finish like two, four cheeseburgers, but the, 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 it was so good from the bread to the fucking juiciness and the, the texture of the fucking meat, the, the vegetables inside. Like, it just felt so, so amazing in the mouth. I'm not going to lie. It was legitimately one of the best things I've ever eaten in my entire life when I had flipping In-N-Out burgers. And I can't wait to visit there once again. Um, yeah, see, look, I even say in my review here, um, succulent beef patty sandwiched between a combo of onions, cheese, tomato, and lovely fluffy bun, the recipe of which I will hunt down until the end of time. The fries I could do without. They had a weird cardboard type taste. Once cool, they tasted even worse. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Oh my God. The In-N-Out burgers, if the, sorry, the In-N-Out fries, if you don't eat them right away, if you let them sit for like five minutes as you're eating your burger, like if you're like a psycho that likes to eat their burger first and not their fries, I personally like to eat my fries before I eat my burger. But if you're a psycho that likes to eat their burger before their fries, you're going to be in for a shock. The fries are awful if you wait five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it is. So, so bad. It really kind of bummed me out. But the, but the fry, but the, the burgers and the shake, amazing. Um, Took into account everyone else's order I spied during my visit. It seems that common knowledge that the fries are to be avoided. Um, if you ever find yourself in the land of the stars and stripes, take some time out of the day and visit this mecca of all things burgers and refillable, refillable fizzy pop. Oh, yeah, another thing too, I realized. Um, you people in America have it fucking great. You have refillable fucking drinks, like fizzy drinks. We don't have that here. We maybe have that in a couple of restaurants. Nando's, I can think of it being one of them. Um, but it's not really a thing in the UK to have like refillable drinks. 
you have to just buy your drink by the cup. So if you want another one, you buy another one. But the fact that you guys have the ability to fucking go and get, you know, a refill on your fucking fizzy pop is fucking amazing. Um, but I also understand if I, if I live there and I could get refillable drinks and I could eat in and out of you every day in Chick fil A, I would be a fucking door. I would look like Wings of Redemption. Honestly, I would be Wings of Redemption level of fat. I'd be so horrible here. Um, but yeah, big up In and Out Burgers, big up In and Out Scene. And um, yeah, man, I think my conclusion on this topic here, restaurants shouldn't be cool. You should go to a restaurant primarily because of the food. My own personal opinion. Um, but if the restaurant is cool and also makes good food, that's absolutely amazing. But if a restaurant has to rely on coolness in order for people to come in through its doors, it's probably failed before it started. Personally for me. And I honestly am such a contrarian. I want to be so different and unique. If a restaurant is cool and everyone's going there, I'll purposely avoid it. Just so I can be the coolest one because I'm not going there. Suck on that for a little bit, huh? Suck on that. How cool am I? I don't go to the place because I'm too cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Anyway, um, moving on from this, right? We're going to talk about this as a brief example. I'm not going to play any of the clips because it's going to get me fucking copyright striked because, you know, it's fucking Beyonce. Am I the only person who's kind of... i got a smile on my face when I see people enjoying Beyonce concerts and Beyonce content. As much as she's not really somebody that I give a shit about that much, it's kind of nice to see people really enjoying live performances, especially within the kind of hip-hop, R&B, adjacent, black music kind of scene because of the quality of live shows the the spectrum is crazy you can go from all the way from just some guy screaming over an mp3 to like a frank ocean level performance there's no medium right some people perform without backing tracks some people scream over backing tracks some people perform with a mic on some people perform just basically lip syncing and i feel like for some reason i don't know why this is the case but hip-hop especially and r&b for sometimes they really do a disservice to the fans with their live show Summer Walker being a good example. Summer Walker's one of the number one R&B artists at the moment. She's fucking fire. Her albums are crazy. She just dropped an EP at the moment that's really good. She's the number one person. But Summer Walker's live performances are so terrible. The clips I've seen of her on stage, they fill me with zero um, encouragement to go and watch her perform. She's got the personality of a cardboard box on stage. She barely moves. She looks like she doesn't want to be there and she doesn't put up on the performance. I'm not asking her to do pyrotechnics or to dance around because someone like an Ari Lennox doesn't really dance around, but she gives you a performance. She's putting it all into it. There's a choir. There's, I don't know, there's things happening, but someone who's just like literally sitting down in a chair or someone just standing really still and kind of whispering into the microphone and it's not enough. So when I see someone like Beyonce, whose music I'm not that big on, putting on an actual show and there's rumors that Beyonce had some sort of leg injury that's why she's been moving a bit funny and you know sitting down in some places here and there but she hasn't made any excuses you've not heard anything be mentioned in the press she just went on like a pro she turns up and she puts on the show and the amount of money that's gone like, don't get me wrong Jay-Z and Beyonce are rich we all know this. I think a recent article came out and said they've just purchased a $200 million, um, you know, a crazy mansion somewhere in fucking uh, LA, right? Cool. But she puts all her money into the performance. Every dime has gone into that fucking stage show. The outfits are all fucking luxury design houses. have all kind of, you know, are fighting over themselves to design outfits for her to wear on stage. Like, it's absolutely insane the money has gone into it. And she's on stage singing. She is singing on stage. 
There's no lip syncing. Nothing along those kind of lines. She is belting, belting out the hits for two plus hours on stage. Loads of cool intermissions, loads of cool videos, loads of cool cameos and stuff like, you know, current, you know, random people from like the Vogue scene who you may have seen on social media blow up over time because a legendary video went viral, like that Honey Balenciaga kid, right? All those people are getting, are getting kind of brought up on stage and being a part of the show. It's fucking cool to see. So it's just nice from all the you know conversation that was had over the last couple of days about how terrible a performance frank ocean was <laughs> over there at fucking um what's it called at coachella it's just nice to see somebody at the top of the level uh, like beyonce not phoning it in and putting on an actual live show filling out actual arenas going on this renaissance world tour and absolutely destroying it from pillar to post i've not seen a single bad review from people everybody's loving it they're going crazy about our performances and i just have to kind of give the woman credit and also it's just refreshing from time to time to hear people legitimately having a good time at these fucking performances and absolutely loving them from what they are and not getting frustrated their artists very artists coming out and not even trying to put on a good show and they're just phoning it in this is this, this these are the levels this is what you should be aiming to kind of emulate if you're doing the musics out there in my opinion so big up beyonce big up beyonce i fucking love to see it and you know if i could go to the f- event myself i would but i'm not gonna bother trying to find tickets they're all going for crazy amounts um i would love to just see it just as like a spectacle but it is what it is um we just kind of see it from the internet from the outside looking in people are streaming the whole live show on their phones uploading onto fucking youtube which i fucking love so you can kind of get a feel of what it looks like but yeah big up beyonce people are getting their money worth they're enjoying it and it just is nice to see people legitimately enjoying concerts from their favorite artists when they actually decide to put some effort in put some money into it and invest in it i fucking love it i fucking love it uh um da, 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 da. we move on from that one. Oh, it's about this one so what do you guys think about this i'm going to play this clip from reconnected episode episode 14 and um house phone and blousey had a very interesting conversation this was like the kind of um post-mortem after they went to la all together all these ex no jumper staff members all went to la together and one of the guys in the crew yuri was live streaming the entire time and yuri kind of idol is ice poseidon right yuri's like 30 years old and his idol's ice poseidon like he should he should already self-expire right he should be walking off the nearest bridge as soon as possible but that goes without saying but he's also very much into streaming right that irl streaming where you basically stream every part of your life but the the, the thing i hate about that irl scene especially the guys like Ice Poseidon, Baked Alaska, and those type of dudes, they kind of provoke, they they provoke situations. So they'll go to a shop, they'll be purposefully rude to somebody so they can get chucked out. They'll purposely go and, I don't know, run around somewhere. They'll just create carnage just for the sake of the live stream. So they're not kind of naturally by the way of just living their life coming into drama they're kind of provoking it and they're usually at the expense of just re- regular people walking around living their regular everyday lives and they're kind of bothering them and getting their nerves it's just annoying to see but the other part of it i was just thinking from the point of view of your friends imagine if you've got a friend as a content creator and not a vlogger a vlogger's one thing but i think just a content creator where you're you know on it all the time and especially if you're doing irl streams would it annoy you if your friend has their phone out all the time recording stuff because I know, I know for me, when I'm out with my friends and we're having dinner and there's somebody taking pictures of the food and they're like, you know, 
they're, they're, they're taking too long. They've taken like 10 pictures of the food and they still haven't got the right one yet. It can get annoying. Like, come on, hurry up. I just want to eat. And they're taking ages to eat. To take ages to kind of finish the pictures, it can be annoying. How much more annoying can it be if your friend is a fucking IRL streamer? So this is a clip of Housephone basically complaining about it and basically saying how he didn't really enjoy his Las Vegas trip because Yuri had his phone on the whole entire time streaming everything they were doing out there in, LA, in Las Vegas. So this is them talking about it now. By like the second or third day, bro. Like you just you The first day, I didn't care. The first day, I'm having a great time. Whatever. Once it got to like the second day... And, like, people are arguing on camera and shit like that. I'm just like, this is too much. So were y'all at the same suite? Nigga, yes. Because, look, so it's like I'm forced to be on it whether I want to be or not. So he's already knocking on your door like, house I didn't even have a door, nigga. I'm, nigga in the, I'm in the fucking in the living room with it. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, on the, I'm on the pull-out bed in the living room. Mind you, like, this nigga convinced me last minute to come on this trip. Uh-huh. I wasn't necessarily planned. Wait, wait, no, I did it. That's a, that's a cap, bro. bro. You talk okay, wait, 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 stop, this. stop, 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 stop. Just calm down. You did this to like three or four different people, and you did the exact same thing to these four different people. But it's I, cool. Listen, we grown as we grown as people at the end of the day. And if I wanted to come, I'm gonna come, which is why I, came. <laughs> I had a great <laughs> fucking time, and I'm not regretting it. But I'm saying you. Like, I'm not saying you forced it, but you really got in my ear like, no, bro, like, you got to come, blah, blah. Like, I was like, I like you just assumed because we talked about it that that meant that I was automatically coming. But I kind of had made a decision of, like, I'm trying not to drink like that right now. I'm trying to be, like, sober. Yeah. Like, I kind of don't really have the money for it like, and all of that. Like, maybe I should just – maybe those are all signs that I should stay home. Uh-huh. And then it was just like, bro, are you fucking – it's my fucking birthday, bro. Are you serious? Like – but like, he wasn't wrong though. So was, would you do it again? Are you joking? We're going I had on another great trip. Time. What do you mean? We go. Hey, we go. Hey, you like, come, uh, listen. Are you coming with us? Yeah. Uh, anyway, you you get the gist of what they're talking about. So yeah, I never I, I never thought about it that way because I guess I'm always the person creating the content, and because I don't really have many friends I hang out with in real life, so it's never really usually a big of an issue. But I would admit I would kind of imagine that if you if you did have a friend who was, you know permanently online and streaming the entire time going out for dinner and drinks would be a hell because you know they're going to be live streaming all flipping day and it'd get on your nerves at a certain point and sometimes you'd be like enough already with this shit like stop please just give us some time let's be able to chill hang out relax without knowing or in the back of our head thinking that there's a fucking camera in the back recording our every move it's going to be a bit annoying after a while. I can definitely understand that in that, re- in that regard. But then I can also understand from the side of view of the content creator and the streamer that, you know, that's probably the most advantageous time to go and stream and do stuff when you're actually doing stuff with your friends, um, you know, living life, experiencing stuff. That's actually what you want to capture. But sometimes it is quite nice to just be able to just relax without having the threat of somebody, you know, essentially recording your every single move like you're on fucking CCTV. So I can definitely understand it from that point of view. But I think it's something that kids nowadays are having an entirely different experience with because it was annoying, like I said before, if you have a friend that's an influencer or that, you know, takes their Instagram very seriously, taking pictures of food and, you know, making you wait to take the first bite of your burger. Or if you have a friend that's always taking pictures when you're out and about somewhere, you're just fucking in the oil. Imagine the opposite of that. Imagine, imagine that heightened. 
They've always got a live stream on. They're streaming every single day, recording actual video footage of you moving around, talking, walking, doing your shit every single day. After a while, that can get very, 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 very boring and very annoying very quickly to the point where you'll probably start questioning, why are we even friends? Why are we even hanging around together if this is what you want to do on a permanent basis? Like, I can't do this anymore. So I completely understand that point of view and where he's coming from. So big up him in that regard. Then moving on here, I'm hoping that this plays as well. Is this going to play? Let's see if this plays. I'm a big believer. Oh, yeah, it does. Cool. So maybe it was just a YouTube. I don't know why YouTube was not working. Okay, cool. Now it's working. So let's quickly go back over this because I, I didn't cover it properly before. But I've mentioned previously that Elon Musk had a very weird stance when it came to working from home. And his stance was that it was morally wrong to work from home which I feel like if you're Elon Musk, you can't be talking about morality, especially when it comes to working from home, considering the amount of morally morally objectionable things that his companies do in order to make money. You just can't say that. But I understand where he's coming from. So now that I've got some experience working under the whole new working from, working from home sort of model, for the last, what, two and a half years, basically I've been doing it um, in some way, shape or form, this current place I'm at now, I'm required to go into the office like once or twice a week for like meetings or whatnot or catch-ups and stuff or reviews if needed be. And that's it. And most of the time I'm working from home. So I can kind of see it from both sides. And I'm also I'm a, I'm a person who before the pandemic and when I was kind of, you know, really into startups and stuff and I'd read loads of fucking startup books and entrepreneurial books and shit. And I was really into that whole Silicon Valley tech scene. I was somebody that was really kind of preaching the fucking, the, the benefits of like startup of like, sorry, working from home. I was kind of on that whole bullshit jobs um, rhetoric as well. Big um, RIP to the author of that book and kind of espousing those thoughts. But now time has gone by and I've sort of like, you know, been working under this floor a little bit i can now understand why some employees or some employers sorry would rather you come and work in the office and also understand why some people prefer to work in an office too or work at an actual place instead of doing all your work from your bed and shit um i can get two sides of it so more importantly let's talk about elon musk and what he had to say about it and him thinking working from is morally objectionable this is a quote take this is a video clip taken from cnbc I'm a big believer that, 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 that people need to are more productive when they're in person. Look, there are some exceptions, but I, I kind of think that, that the whole notion of work from home is, is a bit like the, you know, the, the, the fake Marie Antoinette quote, let them eat cake. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's, like, it's like, really, you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work, to the work in the factory? You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered that they can't work from home? The, you know... The, the people that, that come fix your house, they, they can't work from home, but you can? Does that seem morally right? That's messed up. You see it as a moral issue? Yes. I mean, I see it more as and just it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, a... It's a productivity issue, but yeah. it's also a moral issue. People should get off the goddamn uh, moral high horse with the work from home bullshit. Um, because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. The, the laptop class is living in la-la land. So I think in this case, Elon Musk's issue is more so the underlying issue is that he hates the laptop class. He hates leftists, especially the ones who were in charge of Twitter beforehand. That's why when he came on board and he bought Twitter, the first thing that he did was do the complete opposite of what they've done. So they had an over bloated 
um, workforce of like thousands of people that they didn't need to have to run the, the 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 company. He got rid of most of them, especially if their politics didn't align or their worldviews didn't align. And one of the kind of like fundamental parts of it was this idea of working from home. Like I think at the time they've still got this big building somewhere in San Francisco that's incredibly large, but they also had this policy of working from home permanently. I think Jack Dorsey was one of the first sort of like big tech founders at the time who implemented working from home across the board. So it kind of made the whole point of having such a massive uh, building block um, of an office kind of redundant if everyone's working from home. And of course, there's also the question of productivity. I feel like if you come from it from a point of view, if you're an owner, if you're a founder and a CEO, whatever it may be, and you come from a point of productivity, I think you have a point in some cases. But it's a double-edged sword. I found with myself, I can work way better or I get more done when I'm in the office because I know I'm around people. So I'm, I'm more accountable to my time and what I'm doing. So I'm not going to be spending a lot of time, you know, fucking around on my phone, checking out shit on websites and stuff. I'm going to be just focusing on the work. So I'll get it done in a quicker amount of time. So I'll get in the office at nine and I can have all my tasks done. Everything I need to do in the day by 12 p.m., right? But that also isn't a good way to work because it kind of then leads you with the rest of the time left before you go home, just kind of twiddling your thumbs. Even if you try and find work to do, there's not a lot to do once you've done your overall basic task. So sometimes you have to spread it out a bit so that you can get more stuff done across the day. But then I also realized sometimes you can spend a lot more time on deep work, like working actually um, for like extended periods of time when you're at home alone. You can't do that when you're in the office. And it's even more so, I felt like I've seen the kind of double-edged sword of it because what's happened now in my workplace is that because we all work from home, but we all sometimes have to come in for one day a week or sometimes one day a month. When we do come in at work for that one day, we're all so happy to see each other. We can't shut the fuck up. <laughs> we can't shut the fuck up because we haven't seen each other for like a week or for, a, or, or for several months, whatever it may be. So we're all catching up on shit or whatever it may be once we're in the office. So there's not a lot of time to sit there with deep work. Everyone's always kind of slacking you this funny thing coming over his desk to ask you this thing but then also talking about that thing it's always a conversation happening there's never really a moment of pure silence across the, across the office always somebody's talking and speaking whatever it may be so i can understand both sides of it but the other thing i think of it going forward long term if i had to choose i could probably choose a hybrid i think there's a time in my life where i wanted to work 100 work from home but now i wouldn't mind a hybrid i'm okay with the idea of like working one or twice a day during you know the week at work because i feel like it gives me an excuse to get out of the house when i'm not running or training um i can go to commute you can take some you know what's the thing called you can take some um you could take some pre-prepared food with you in terms of meal prep. That's always nice as well. Maybe having drinks after work with your work colleagues is also great for bonding and all that malarkey and getting work done. And sometimes if you're, especially if you're doing like work projects or collaborations or working with other teams, being in front of them face-to-face, -face, clarifying certain things can get done way quicker than email or Slack can be done. All those things can improve greatly by just been talking to people. But the idea that it's morally unacceptable is crazy but like i said i feel like he's talking more to the laptop class coastal elite type people who basically some of them do have a little bit of a superiority complex they do actually think they're better than the, their delivery people they probably do think they're better than the people that tend their gardens or that repair their homes i'm pretty sure they do or they just think they're better than people because they get to walk around the office with a fucking laptop around their hand or go to the coffee shop browsing and shit while they're offering their latte i'm pretty sure that's the case but i think for the majority of people that isn't and the other side of things that doesn't get spoke about is if you're working on a 
low income, if you're working on a job that's already low, uh, no, that pays shitty, right? Like the roles that I've had before, working as fuck, working in marketing where you're like a marketing assistant or you're doing social media shit, those things usually don't pay that great. So if they don't pay that great, you're spending a lot of money. If you're going to the office day to day, just go into work. So my travel card will be crazy amounts of money. That's why usually most of the time I'll be taking the bus or I'll be cycling. Or sometimes if you're really broke, you'll be jumping the gates and shit. And um, nowadays, if you can work those jobs, but then you don't have to spend a thousand pound or whatever it may be, or 500 on travel, that's actually a good thing because it means that you can actually pursue a career that you're actually passionate about. Um, even though it doesn't make you much money because you're saving money on the travel. So then you can, you know, go for it and then, you know, slog away from a year or two in as an entry level, earning 20K per year, but then eventually get into a point where you maybe can apply for other things or get promoted or whatever maybe to make more money. So it gives you opportunity to kind of be a bit more flexible with your career. And then again, of course, if you're working from home. You also have the ability to apply for jobs that are maybe outside of your purview because the headquarters are based not near where you live so you can apply for places outside of london outside of the uk eventually that might lead to you moving to these countries or these places all those things are amazing and that's all comes as a requisite or as a kind of byproduct of working from home and i feel like to end it overall it's good as in culturally in the workspace it's become an acceptable thing to do in some cases because i feel like beforehand it was a privilege only reserved for the higher ups if you were middle if you were upper management or mid-level and above that's the only time you could work from home and it was always done on a kind of hush hushy don't ask any questions basis but if you're a lowly assistant like i was you had no possibility of working from home. so sometimes i'd work in offices where you turn up on the friday or the thursday and there'd be hardly anybody there and then everyone's like slacking in or making it known in the group pages. Oh, I'm working from home today because I've got a meeting because my kid is this, because my dog is this. And you're like, what the fuck? Why do I have to come in on the fucking Friday? But you guys don't. So now I feel like because we're all in an equal, equal playing field, it makes it far more fair personally for me. But I also understand if you're an owner and an operator and a founder like Elon, um, you probably do prefer to have people in the office just because you feel like they do work way harder when they're in the office as opposed to working at home. Fair enough, fair enough. Next again, let's talk about this. This is fucking hilarious. I'm pretty sure some of you have seen this. Uh, let me see if I can get it up on here. Bear with me one secundo. I legitimately think this is hilarious, right? So most of you guys have seen this, right? This fucking picture of Kanye West with his wife Bianca Sensori walking around LA and shit the funny thing that makes me laugh about this picture is that if you're not watching the video um, Elon Kanye yeah he's wearing this um it looks like it basically looks like um something fighters wear to cut weight but it looks like it's made out of leather so it's kind of like a imagine like a leather jumper or a leather top with elasticated you know neck and stuff and uh waistband and shit but it looks like the kind of thing you'd wear to kind of cut weight so you can sweat inside and shit right and he's also got on these tights that look like legitimately like leggings and then the funniest thing that he has on these um elite um muay thai pads this type of things that you'd wear when you go to your groupon muay thai classes and i know because i've been to a few groupon muay thai classes so that's what he's wearing day to day on the streets and he's got his wife bianca sensori wearing some nutty outfit right it looks fucking crazy she looks absolutely wild but the funny thing about Kanye wearing this suit is that he looks like he's going he, he just came from a fight right that he went to the gym to do some muay thai or whatever which i don't think is the case so he dresses like a fighter has this sort of like fight superhero gear on 
But Kanye is also the first person who runs away from fights. That's the one thing that I remember thinking about the whole thing that kind of bummed me out about Ye when he was going through his little breakdown or whatnot, when he was beefing with Diddy and shit and, you know, airing out Tremaine Emery and shit, all that malarkey, is that he legitimately, legitimately looks like somebody that loves to provoke people into a reaction and then starts crying like a victim. That's what he was doing with Diddy. Diddy was like, oh, I want to meet you. Come and let's link up. Let's discuss this like friends or discuss this like whatever, like men. And Kanye would be taking screenshots of the text and uploading it onto fucking Instagram saying, oh, Diddy, if anything happens to me, Diddy did it. Diddy did it. If anything happens to me, Diddy did it. And it's like, bro, you can't be talking mad smack about people saying what you want. Then when they want to fight, you initially and first of all run to the internet and start crying. That's the thing that kind of bummed me. I was like, raw, Kanye is one of those type of people. So when I saw Kanye walking around wearing these Muay Thai pads, like he's, like he actually fights. It legitimately makes me laugh so hard because it reminds me of guys I grew up with sometimes who, when they first go into boxing, I'm sure some of you guys know them. There'll be dudes when they get into boxing for the first time, they start wearing their boxing shoes day to day, walking around a lot. Or they always walk around with their hand wraps on. Or they'll be always wrapping their hands. Or they're always fucking shadow boxing and shit to show that they're fucking fight, they're actual fans of, you know, <laughs> boxing and whatever it may be. And that always made me laugh. Like, that is a legit sign that you're not good at what you do, that you can't fight, and that deep down you're a pussy because you're wearing all this shit. That's the actual name of it because actual fighters don't go out their way to kind of walk down the street with a fucking, I don't know, with a sweatsuit on and some fucking Muay Thai pads. They don't do that on a day-to-day basis. They'd rather just like, you know, live live it how they live it. And if you happen to cross paths with them, then then you're going to get put, you know, they're going to put the beats on you. But I saw this video, I saw, sorry, this this, this picture. And it legitimately made me laugh. Legitimately made me laugh seeing Kanye West in this fucking her crazy, horrible looking sweatsuit and these fucking Muay Thai pads because in real life, he doesn't want to fight. He says what he says about people. He gets people pissed off and angry and upset. But when they do get angry, he's, I'm angry and upset about him. He gets angry and upset that they're angry and upset. He can't understand why people can get uh, aggravated or annoyed at the things that he says but then he also wants to say what he wants to say absolutely unhinged and this is a form of unhinged isn't it? They, they both look kind of unhinged without you know without being mean about it they both look very very unhinged both of these outfits are absolutely insane but again both one of these people is one of the richest people in the world in Kanye right he's a fucking legit billionaire and he and he walks around looking like this like it just doesn't make any sense personally for me why would you choose to look like this on purpose um this could be a reflection of his mental state who knows if that is the case then I obviously sound horrible saying what I'm saying now but I don't know the guy so I just observe from afar I like the stuff that he makes I buy it I enjoy it but when I see this and then I remember him taking screenshots of the text messages he was getting from Diddy and crying online saying, if something happens to me, Diddy did it. Then I look at it and think, you know what? Kanye is a little bit annoying in that regard. Don't annoy me and don't start saying crazy shit about me. And then when I want to fight you, you then immediately run to social media. And also don't walk around with Muay Thai pads on if you don't, you know, if you don't do Muay Thai, please. That's just crazy. But anyway, what do I know? What do I know? Then on top of that, there was this video that I thought was really charming because this basically proved that Bianca Sensori, Ye's wife now, is definitely a down girl. She's definitely for the team. She's definitely a ride or die woman because some random person online, maybe he's like a Riz God, maybe that's part of his like social media shit that he does, but some dude must have randomly bumped into Bianca Sensori at a shopping mall somewhere where she was buying some shorts, he says in a clip, and he tried to pull her, right? He tried to give her a bit of riz, tried to give her a bit of game, and she kind of turned him down in the most graceful way possible. 
the funny thing I've seen online about the about the the response to this is that people are now saying, even though Bianca Sensori said clearly, "I'm married," and she didn't let the guy take her number, whatnot, and was you know kind about it. People are now saying that she was laughing too much. She was being too friendly. So I'm thinking to myself, women can't win, can they? If they're too friendly with some dudes, they'll take it as a sign that the woman that the woman's look giving you an invitation for you to like try and pursue it even though she's got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or they look at you like you're a whore or something or whatever it may be but i thought she dealt with it very well in my personal opinion um you know in the most respectable way possible without being too rude about it in that regard but people still aren't happy with this response so let me play the clip for you so you can see what i mean this is bianca Sensori, kanye's wife um you know gracefully rejecting a guy trying to pull her sexy my name new nice to meet you you from la Yes. Okay, I just moved down here and shit, man. Where are you from? Chicago. Nice. Yeah, you got good eye contact. The the only thing that that I don't like about this video, she's probably smiling a little bit too much, and it is giving a lot of teeth. Don't get me wrong, she's got a lot of teeth. But one thing that's very clear on this video, this woman is very, very attractive, like pretty in the face, because she doesn't look like she's wearing a lot of makeup. She's got her hair slicked back. There's not a lot of, like, stuff going on in her face to kind of make her you know, to kind of accentuate her looks. This is kind of fresh faces you can get. And she does look really good in the face. Let's not deny that. But people are still complaining that she's smiling. If if I'm going to be nitpicky, I'll say the smile's a bit too wide for me, right? Maybe bring it in a little bit more. But she's still very, very pretty in the face. And she still, you know, turned him down very graciously. <laughs> yeah. Are you just shopping around? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You? Uh, yeah, it's the same. I was just a pair of shorts I wanted to see. Yeah? Can I get your number? I'm married! Huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. Sexy. So, yeah, she says she's married. I don't I don't mind that, man. I don't mind that. Um, I think it's too far. I think when I've, had fe- my, when I've had female friends I spoke to about this issue, a lot of female friends I speak to about this sort of stuff, a lot of women, for the most part, especially if they're not interested in the person, they just get annoyed at the attention. They get annoyed at the attention. They get annoyed. They don't like the attention. Um, you know, people interrupting them during their day, bugging them, talking to them, coming to their personal space. They just don't like it. And I guess it's different if you're, I guess it's a lot heightened. I guess it's worse if you're really attractive or conventionally attractive. Um, you probably get a lot of guys leering at you, talking to you. And it can get annoying after a while. But sometimes the thing that I don't like when I spoke to my female friends is that, I don't like it when they say that they want to be rude. You know? Like, as a way to kind of shut it down. Because the reason why I don't like that is because you can't control how butthurt that's going to make a guy feel. Some guys take rejection very well. Some guys don't take rejection well. And I don't think a woman should play, should roll the dice on that. I feel like you should just treat everything with kindness and courtesy like this and walk away. You can't be shutting down guys rudely because you don't know what he's going to do. He might be unhinged and he might just like go crazy on you. And that would be the worst kind of scenario to be, especially if you're a dude and that's your partner and stuff like, I mean, because you could see red in that instance and legitimately catch an M charge. So, you know, I think in some respects, if you can be courteous and you can be cool and you can turn somebody down gracefully, you can. But then I also understand it can be really annoying if you're a woman and you just left your house and you've had 59 people leer at you 
and 27 people try and talk to you and you're just trying to get to work you're just trying to go meet your friend to for dinner and shit it can be fucking exhausting but i just don't think it's sensible and it's safe <laughs> to turn down dudes really aggressively and to tell them to fuck off and shit because you don't know how unhinged this guy can be and most women you know pale in terms of size and strength and shit when it comes to dudes and it's just not worth it personally just with grace keep it moving i'm married i'm taken i'm not interested whatever it may be and keep it moving i don't think that's anything wrong in that personally i don't think there's anything wrong in that so i think bianca sensori did the right thing here um don't get me wrong am i too enamored about the smile am i too enamored about the giggle and the like after you're sexy probably not but again to be fair to her somebody's allowed to come up to you and say you're sexy without it being an issue and without you instantly saying i'm married that's also a weird response it's like when people say oh i like your jacket oh it's from primark it's from the charity shop don't devalue your don't kind of like dismiss the compliment straight away because you're not comfortable with you know receiving a compliment or whatever it may be or something that you're wearing so you just devalue it and take it away by saying it's from primark or it's from the charity shop the same thing with this a guy can objectively say oh i think you look really amazing your reply doesn't need to be unmarried <laughs> that's insane just say thank you very much and keep it moving if they didn't try and say hey can i get your number and see you again no i'm not interested no i'm taken cool but it doesn't always need to be met with fucking you know what i mean like boom slam the door in their face it could just be like an innocent thank you you know you look good i understand some women don't like to receive compliments from people that they, they, they don't know but i don't know sometimes i look at maybe because i'm into fashion and shit but if somebody's wearing a cool outfit i'll tell them you, you got a cool outfit on whoa i fucking love your outfit i love your shoes i love your dress i love this whatever and it shouldn't mean i love your dress i love to see what you look like when you're not wearing it no it could just mean i love your fucking dress but i know it always sounds weird coming from like a straight guy's point of view because i guess if you're gay you can get away with it to say that kind of thing more but if you're straight you can't and also maybe should you be looking at women's dresses and what their boobs look like and tops and shit it should be that in your mind if you're if you're with somebody probably not i'm sure but i don't think she did anything wrong here personally for me she did nothing wrong here she handled like a champ and um yeah one thing to a certain she definitely is very pretty in the face and one thing is for certain yay has the fucking Ye has the game of the century. He has a pretty good rap sheet. I thought ASAP Rocky had a pretty good one, and so does Drake and maybe French Montana, right? They've got a really legendary kind of CV. Even someone like a what's his name, the white comedian, he's got a really good CV. But if you think about it, Kanye's got a pretty decent hit list, right? His CV is not that bad. You have to be honest when it comes to the women's. He knows how to pick them, and she's some, she's some. I won't say random, but she was fairly unknown because allegedly she was working at Yeezy as a architecture or something for a long time so yay and her have known each other for a while but yeah she's really really attractive like in the face for sure i think now you see because this is a shitty camera phone video um and she's clearly not wearing that much makeup but she looks already that good in the face without any kind of accoutrements and shit so big up yay yay always wins yay always wins moving on from that one let's talk about yeah oh yeah and then of course most of you have seen it already innit? have you seen this um there's some pictures actually of her she took modeling um what she did recently modeling uh yeezy season which i don't think i don't know what she's actually modeling because it looks like paint it doesn't even look like clothing to me but there's some pictures here of her modeling some bits and pieces from yeezy that went kind of viral um a couple of days ago which i wasn't really too fond of 
But you know, you, you know, yeah, he likes to kind of use his girls as muses to kind of um present some of his ideas on clothing and that around. So it's got some sort of relevance to it. I think if I'm not mistaken, this was all designed by the girl from Mawa Lola, the founder of that. She kind of put this stuff together. Essentially it's her with what looks like a cross sign, um, you know, raising up her buttocks and shit and really long thigh high boots that look like they've been painted on and shit. And this cross birth this this cross thing, this rectangle square thing on top of her boobies that's covered in black also this is very very daring this is the kind of thing that i'd like to see actually on fucking um on red carpets and shit i think if you're gonna go on red carpets and you're gonna do premieres i want to see something challenging or something kind of like out of this world i don't want to just see you wearing this regular ball gown really kind of push the envelope and wear something racy like this this will be absolutely incredible i would flipping love it personally i would love to see something like that if that was the case and more pictures here of course of the thing as well um for easy season so big up bianca Senzori, big up them it's looking good big up them um moving on from that one when quickly mention this as well this is courtesy of hype never dies and also ian connor it looked like he was gifted a one-of-one sample jacket from Chrome Hearts that looks absolutely incredible. Legitimately, one of the best jackets I've seen in a really, really long time. Sometimes this is one of the benefits of being a sample size. And I think Ian Cotter said it recently as like a boast and a brag. Oh, I only wear one-of-one or samples. And he's, you know, which is obviously not true because he's got plenty of stuff that you can buy in a fucking normal retail store but he's just trying to flex but one of the things that is good about being sample size is that no one to be sample size you have to be really small anyway right you have to be basically like ian connor who looks like a small adult child or you have to be really skinny so it's kind of hard to fit into sample sizes because you have to be very slight but one of the benefits about it is that when somebody's ideating or figuring out a piece that they want to design and working through some samples, then you can essentially get a one-off design that sometimes is a lot better than the production line or the, the production version. Because sometimes going through a sample, you can maybe realize that a particular detail that you want on a jacket or whatever it may be, or a particular finish, um, can maybe you can maybe save a bit of money if you basically take it off or whatever. You can increase production levels if you kind of remove certain things. So sometimes the actual sample is better than the actual production model version just because you have to cut some corners and cut some costs or maybe you've got some feedback back from the buying team about what it's going to look like blah 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 but legit this chrome hearts jacket is absolutely incredible that he got it's got flaming youth here written on the back um with this amazing yellow satin body it has a flame type logo or um motif and stitch here on the sleeves with this really nice kind of webbed barbed um design here on the sleeves like wrangland sleeves on the body which kind of extends up with the kind of diamond printed um skis on it before you've also got the fact that it's reversible that's absolutely incredible so you've got the same chrome hearts logo motif on the arms um i think that's been embroidered in also with this velvet plush velvet lining on the inside and the black and gold combo like that just looks so beautiful ridiculously beautiful at the back you've got chrome hearts written there hollywood legit one of the best things i've seen and usually i'm not the biggest fan of chrome hearts clothing i think it can be a bit naff in my personal opinion but i do like when they make these one-off pieces i don't think they need to make a full collection have a full runway show they probably will end up having it because chrome hearts is kind of having its 17th revival in the industry and scene right now is becoming you know it's kind of one of the most popular brands out there that people are really heavy on so most likely you would imagine 
they might end up deciding to actually start presenting collections on runways or doing showrooms and stuff but i do prefer and like that they just drop pieces here and there whenever they feel like it and which basically means they could spend a lot more time designing pieces like instead of kind of trying to design a whole entire collection so you can kind of really sit down and get really nerdy with a jacket like this and do all the things that you kind of wish you could have done on a jacket like this because you love the style of the cut and whatnot but yeah i love the entire thing you kind of really lucky to be able to get a jacket like this especially because it kind of is another kind of sign that you've got people on the inside that are fans of what you do so they can kind of you know give you this type of shit to kind of rock and wear out there but yeah that jacket is fucking beautiful it looks absolutely amazing and um, big up ian connor for having that in your collection because jesus christos that jacket is beautiful moving on we've got an update here courtesy of hype never dies regarding travis scott jordan freeze this is interesting because there was news recently i remember reading about a supposed leak that said the next travis scott um the next travis scott shoes from nike are going to be sbs and then the first thing i see leaked after the fact are these jordan frees now i don't want to make too many too many um conclusions here or correlations but considering that we've already got a Jordan 4 SB that's doing absolute numbers, that Jordan Friel, um white sail and pine Jordan 4 is fucking beautiful. It probably has the best shape of any Jordan 4 because if I'm not mistaken, I remember somebody saying one of the edits that they've made on the overall shoe was that they made the front of it a little bit more rounded and a little bit more flat to the surface, if you get what I mean. Um, a lot of Nike shoes, if you wear them, especially retros, they have this really weird banana boat type style you know bend at the front but this jordan 4 in particular the sb version they've they've kind of updated it to kind of be a little bit more flat on the outsole and the profile is really kind of square and just it, it looks amazing so it makes me think if that's the case and they're you know trying to in you know um kind of slowly but surely in ingrain a bit of jordans into sbs because obviously the Jordan brand, if you know anything about 80s skateboarding, 90s skateboarding, a lot of skaters back in the day would wear Jordan 1s, Jordan 4s and stuff to skate. Especially back in the Zoo York days. I think you could, I'm sure you can see their Zoo York videos that feature people wearing Jordan 4s um, as a flipping skate shoe. It wouldn't be surprising if they start going down the whole entire line and start you know, making skateboard versions of a Jordan 1, Jordan 2, Jordan 3. Jordan 4, Jordan 5, Jordan 6s, even 7s. I can see that happening because those are all shoes that kind of came out around the time, you know, 90s, early 2000s skateboarding was really kind of popping off. And I wouldn't be too mad at it because one thing that I've always said about Jordan 3, which I always thought when you're wearing them, they're very bulky looking, but they also remind me of what a, you'd consider like an Osiris or a D3 skate shoe to look like. They're very boxy. Um, they have a very substantial feel to them. They're kind of very flat and broad and they would kind of work really well if they kind of update them to be skate specific. Maybe with a bit more of a gummy, stickier sole, maybe changing some of the bits on the top to make sure that it's a bit more resistant to kind of getting rubbed on with grip tape and shit. Maybe padding out the tongue a little bit or maybe unpadding it because it's already quite thick. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Jordan Freeze already come with elastic on the side of the tongue so you can wear them without laces and it can kind of make sure the tongue doesn't move around too much. That would be great. But this edit of the Jordan Freeze is absolutely amazing because one thing about Jordan Freeze, they don't have any kind of... Um, there's not any sort of recognizable swoosh on them, um, except for the heel tab. 
It's kind of a clean design, which I've always liked about Jordan 3s. So these look really cool because what Travis Scott has done with these kind of traditional sort of like, you know, design ethos is that he's applied the backward swoosh onto the Jordan 3. So you don't usually get swooshes on the Jordan 3, but you've got a backward swoosh on this and it's the same sort of like color sort of, you know, the color template they usually kind of adopts with the browns and stuff, but it's mostly white. You've got white here. You've got the sun cement. You've got what looks like might be a brown or black midsole and you've got a big massive black or brown which i think is mostly brown swoosh has been reversed um up there on the upper so i think that's going to be look amazing i'm really 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 hoping that's an sb because the shape is going to be updated even if it's not an sb i'll still get them just because of the novelty the novelty of these is going to be enough for me to purchase them because it's a jordan 3 with a swoosh on the side and you rarely if ever get something like this um out there on the market so i'm really really curious to see how this kind of um develops over time but so far no extra details on it or when it's meant to be coming out but that's the first indication that we have that we might be receiving a jordan 3 sb courtesy of travis scott so i'm really curious to see how that kind of develops then next i want to mention this regarding the zach beer field recordings nike air plus out no nike air pulse sorry official images the nike air pulse feels like it's going to be that shoe that nike always has i feel like every other year um they had it with a 720 they had it with a 270 these like weird nondescript air maxes are kind of like what they kind of attempting to be like the new air max one or new Air Max 90 but then it just turns out to be the fucking eastern european shoe of choice right and it's not really something that i would be wearing in any kind of meaningful way and unfortunately they have a very short shelf life in terms of coolness so this nike air pulse may be pretty cool to wear now because not many people have had them and they probably haven't come out officially in all the colorways blah 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 but as soon as these start touching jd sports and start in infiltrating the masses suddenly the cool factor of them completely eradicates so you kind of have to get on them quite pretty quickly but to talk about this model specifically this model has been a collaboration with the influencer and really famous DJ um, Zach Beer and his um, labeled Field Trip Recordings. And if I'm not mistaken, the shoe itself is inspired by Pioneer CDJs and DJ equipment in general, such as the mixer. And I honestly think these are kind of shit, colorway wise. Like, I don't know, the literal translation of taking the colorway of a pair of Pioneer CDJs in the mixer and applying them onto a shoe is a little bit lame because I've always thought the Pioneer DJ equipment is always kind of a bit sterile looking because it's all black. That's why I always thought when Virgil did the see-through Pioneer turntables, I'm sure some of you guys may have seen Virgil Abloh Pioneer uh, see-through, right? Let's see if I can find it. Um, flipping decks. I thought this was really cool and I really wish that Pioneer would have ended up releasing them. I'm not too sure why they never released it. I'm assuming it's because of production. Maybe it just it's just really hard to produce these on mass and kind of get them out there to the masses. I'm pretty sure that must be the case. But I would have assumed something like this, especially considering it's limited edition at the time where Virgil was alive, or even now, would still sell like absolute hotcakes. But this was the far more interesting thing I've ever seen Pioneer do because it just kind of allowed you to see Pioneer turntables in a whole different light than what you're used to seeing them day to day because usually they're always black it's always the same shit they look fucking boring as fuck to me personally but i thought these see-through ones kind of gave them a bit more of a judge a bit more of a vavavum, a bit more of a je ne sais quoi so to take the actual default color of these decks and apply them to a pair of shoes in my personal opinion i think it's kind of boring and kind of lame especially for a nike collab i would have gone a bit more crazier on them 
So I'm not really too fond of them because, you know, they're basically all black shoes with a silver swoosh on them. And then it's got the field trip recordings on the back and it's got channel one and channel two on the back of the heel tabs. So not really something that I'm all the way into in the slightest. I think they could have done a bit more with this collab and kind of made them feel a little bit more special. But I feel like taking the colorway inspiration for a pair of Pioneer um, decks and a Pioneer flipping DJM mixer and stuff is probably a sign of a real lack of creativity in my personal opinion not really the biggest fan of them not really the biggest fan of the nike air pulse either and most likely deals will end up in flipping jd sports in terms of the model anyway and people won't care about them in a year or so but for some reason nike always kind of persists with these models they always seem to always have one at like the 270s one like i said before and the 720 and it's the same case with these pulse um shoes i'm sure they've already come out already i'm pretty sure they may be released if you do like them of course google them and find it out if you're able to buy them but for me not for me in the slightest. Not for me in the slightest. Moving on from that one. Quickly went to cover this regarding the Shade Borough, which is featuring the Sunday Times have the 35 under 35 rich list, which is pretty interesting to see who is um, regarded as some of the richest people under 35 here in the UK. Some interesting names here. Number one, you've got Adele. With a net worth of 165 million. Of course, net worth figures are very, you know, uh, very hard to pin down because not everybody's going to be putting their business out there. So take all this with a pinch of salt. But still, 165 million for Adele is flipping nuts, but makes a lot of sense. Ed Sheeran, net worth 300 million. Again, nuts, but makes a lot of sense. Anthony Joshua, net worth 150 million, especially considering how often he's lost over the last couple of times. That's pretty decent as well because boxing, for some reason, has a real big um, hoopla around lost records, maybe because of Floyd Mayweather, who knows? But, you know, having a zero next to your loss is a real big um, coup in boxing. And sometimes taking a loss can be seen as um, you. Um, essentially, you know, your career is kind of over if you have too many losses in boxers, where, whereas in places like the UFC, you can fight some of the best in your division and have four back-to-back losses and no one kind of bats an eyelid because you're basically fighting the best of the best. So it makes sense why you'd lose. But in boxing, you kind of don't do that. So that's still um, commendable from um, Anthony Joshua. So big up him in that regard. You've got Harry Styles' net worth being $150 million. You've got Raheem Sterling, a footballer um, for Chelsea in England, $61 million. Uh, it continues here. You've got Ben Francis, the founder of uh, Gymshark, 900 million, close to a billy in net worth. Big up him. And the other one being Reese Wabara, who's the founder of um, Ami de Beauvoir Clothing. I think that's how you pronounce the name. And all of them are there. But one thing I've realized, checking the list, right? In order to be rich on this sort of level, have a net worth in the north of 100 million, you kind of have to be a normie. All of these people apply and are known to normies. I don't think there's a normie out there in, in the world, a regular schmegler, regular civilian out there who doesn't laugh too much considering what these comedians say about people, who doesn't know who these people are. So as much as people like to rag on the normies and kind of use it as a slight and as a dig, the only way you can become crazy rich like these people is if you, are, if you, is if you appeal to the grand masses to the general public is the only way that you can become or you can have a net worth up far out exceeding the 100 million or 50 million pluses. That's the only way you can do that. 
if you don't apply, if you don't, uh, uh, if you don't kind of have the appeal to the general public, it's really difficult to kind of get to this sort of level because essentially you're selling your shit to the general public. And there's more general public people out there than there are hipsters or cool people like me. So if you want to be rich, you want to be famous, be a normie, be a normie clearly on this list. And you too can be rich and famous like the people featured there on that list. You too can be rich and famous. Next one to feature this, which I thought was really cool. Regarding Boosie, he's building this whole entire complex that he's going to be having next to his house because I think he purchased like a crazy amount of land. I'm actually going to play a video from uh, Vlad actually in a minute where he talks about it, but he purchased a crazy amount of land and he's building this whole entire complex of houses and shit for his family and friends to live next to him. And I guess in some part, it's so you keep your family and friends next to you. In another part, it's also to make sure that you have your personal space but you also have your friends next to you and your family and shit. But it's really cool to see that he's investing this amount of money into himself. But it's also a real big wake-up call as to how rich Boosie actually is. And people don't remember that Boosie is legitimately a street legend. He's a hood legend. And one of the things I remember about Boosie, me thinking as a criticism of his, when I used to check his Instagram page from time to time, you check his Instagram and he'll be performing at the most random ghetto gutter clubs you've ever seen in your entire life in the middle of nowhere there'll be places in in america somewhere that i didn't even know black people would live there and he'll be performing in the most grimiest club ever and it'll be fucking packed because boosie essentially is like you know he's like jay-z in these fucking streets over there right so he'll, he'll be having his club absolutely packed it looks fucking crazy it looks like everybody in there's got a gun you know it could go left at any moment but he's performing his fucking ass off giving him a real fucking show like staying there for pictures and shit having a drink pouring up going to the local strip club like he's doing the business and he's been doing this for years he's been selling cds out the trunk for years he's also been performing at gutter places for years so it makes me think if you're a celebrity or if you're if you're if you want a career in music if you want to become an artist a dj whatever it may be there's a part of you i wonder if some people would accept this would you rather be a chart-selling artist who actually doesn't make much money, is always living paycheck to paycheck, gig to gig, but you're in the fader, you're on billboard, you're on all the cool blogs, people hear your name, they always talk about you well just because of how cool you are, blah, blah, blah. Or would you rather be like Boosie and be relatively quote-unquote unknown, but you have the streets on lock, you have a particular niche and you make a lot of money because you perform at the most hoodest, ratchet places where they always give you cash in hand. So you're always coming out with bread in your pocket. Every time you step out of the house, you're always fucking getting money put back in your pocket. It's never just you like these other artists out there who are just spending money to perform. Whereas Boosie is making money every time he goes out. Like legitimately, every time he's going out, he's making money. So think about it a minute whilst you watch this clip of um, Boosie having a tour of his compound and what it looks like. This looks absolutely incredible. I pay a little bit of sound, Look at So what you're seeing here is uh, some workers on the building site where he's building a massive complex of houses um, where all his family and friends can live in. And it's got a pool. It's got a little golf course next to it. Like, and if I'm not mistaken, this is like on the outskirts of Atlanta as well. So it's not even in like the city, wherever it may be. So it's out, out of the way. 
He's not that rel- he's not that well known outside of if you're really plugged in like that. Um, he's not like a conventional commercial name, but he makes a lot of money because he plays crazy amount of shows at random places. He always puts out music somewhat independently, and he just does his own thing. But he's very successful and has been. And look at it. That's a that's a big flex. All the street names. Um, in this kind of complex that he's going to be having are all named, I think, mostly after his kids or members of his family. You've got Daryl Milton Avenue, Tootie Avenue, Lil Ivy Avenue, uh, Lane. Like, all this is a floss. This is what you actually want. So either you want the optics of looking successful and being in Pitchfork or you want the ability to actually be able to build complexes and have flipping pools in your fucking residence that you can basically have for your family behind the gate. And here's Boosie actually speaking about it in detail about what he's basically doing, courtesy of Vlad. Vlad's probably going to strike this, but fuck it, it doesn't matter. Let's play it. Instagram post uh, last month, and it showed uh, it showed your new mansion. Badass estates under construction right now, boy. <laughs> you already know. Got the court done. Court done, nigga. You see it. You see it, nigga. The court done, nigga. You see it. Start digging that pool next week. I had the second biggest pool in Georgia under Rick Ross. My shit down here. Huge ass pool, man. Plus, you see all them trees back there. I got 28 acres behind them trees. It's just 11 acres you see on the grass. I got 28 more acres behind those trees. Putting a cabin back there. Putting it on Garfield Street. We're going to make the trail back there. Like cross the track. Fucking with the coat though. The court came out nice, man. Yeah, it's not a mansion. It's a state. I'm in my mansion right now. Okay, but you moving to your state? Yeah, I'm moving to my estate in a couple months. Okay. How many square feet is your estate? Do you mind telling me? It's 22,000 square feet. 22,000 square feet? Yeah, on God 40 damn. acres. On 40 acres? Yeah. In Atlanta? Outskirts of Atlanta, country, like the country, about, about 45 minutes outside Atlanta. I mean, what are we talking about here? 10 million, 15 million here, something like that? Nah, I, um, maybe basically I got a steal on it, man. Um, I got the acres. I caught somebody going through a divorce. Uh, I caught somebody going through a divorce, man, and they bought the land for like a million dollars. I gave them $250,000 cash. I put like 2.7. Isn't that the still of the century? He bought all that land for 250000 I know you have to have the money to invest in it to make it what it is, but two fifty k for all that land. Wow. A million in the building, the home on top of it. So I came out with a lick. You know, once it's built, you know, once it's built, you're talking about a $50 million uh, property. Yeah, for $3 million. Yeah. My man. I love it. <laughs> So that's absolutely amazing. But like I said, I think there are more artists out there for some reason who would prefer to just be well-known in all these publications and have the appearance that they're very successful, but they actually don't make a lot of money day-to-day, which is really, really, really sad. I'm not going to lie. It's legitimately one of the saddest things to see. Artists that you love and you follow and that you're a big fan of legitimately not be able to make a living some of the artists like you know someone like a santi gold recently came out and said she basically can't go on tour because she can't afford it she can't afford it monetarily and also it doesn't make enough money to make her want to leave the home 
like I guess if you're an artist at a certain sort of type of level, it makes sense only to leave the house and be without your family if it's actually going to make you money. That's actually going to change your circumstances considerably. But if she's going out just for the look, just for a couple of thousand, she'd rather just sit at home and hope for a brand deal to come her way on Instagram or something, or hope to do a couple of appearances or go do a couple of red carpets and shit here and there, then go and tour. So it makes a lot of sense why people prefer not to do that unless it makes money, money, money. But I also think there's an entire economy of artists out there who are relatively low key, not the most out there and famous, whatever it may be, but they make a lot of money because they don't care about being cool. They care about putting on shows. They care about owning their own music, putting out music when they want and servicing their fans. That's it. And if that's the case, you are always going to be lit. You're always going to have money and you're always going to have a fan base because Boosie also has a career prior to going to prison. He has a career when he was when he was super young where he basically made the majority of his hit records and he could perform on the back of those hit records forever and ever, especially nowadays where there's a resurgence now of people loving early 2000s music. That's when Boosie was actually at his peak. So you can imagine him going around performing all his new, so all his old bangers um, to, to crowds of people who love um, what he does. And also have an ability to perform some new stuff because he can do what the fuck he wants because he's semi-independent. So I think I legitimately would prefer to have this career. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I prefer. I definitely prefer to have this career. What are you saying to you? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Someone said in the chat here, Santiago Diaz says, you have to be aware Santi's not a rapper. There's more overheads when she needs a gig um, or instruments. No, for sure. I understand what you mean. Definitely, you're right in that respect. Um that's why I also understand why rappers make so much money because they don't put any money into their performances. They literally go there and whatever equipment they already have, they just plug and play. They might have a DJ there with the MIDI controller and the laptop, but especially they're using the same mics, the same monitors, nothing else changes. And usually some of the time, they don't even have um, an instrumental of the record. They're singing over the actual MP3 that you've heard on your phone, right? And that's it. So you don't get much of a performance from them at all. They're not even investing in, you know, getting a fucking instrumental made or cutting cutting off the vocals. They're not doing any of that shit. They're just rapping over the song and screaming so you can make loads of money. But I also know that it still costs money to tour, especially if you're going to go around from place to place, perform at places to place, wherever it may be. You're still going to have to expense something. So at some point, it has to make more money than you basically putting out to actually go there. So I know it's a lot more money if you're in, uh, you're in an actual band like Santi Gold is um, to actually go out and tour and stuff. You're having to pay a lot of people's way. You're actually having to transport equipment and get and, you know, and basically be able to tear that shit down, start it up again in different places. A lot goes into it, a lot of stress. But I just think in general... I'm just talking more about an artist, where you'd prefer to be, who you'd prefer. I would prefer to be a Boosie, where I've got a long, near on 20 year career in hip hop, where I'm always making money. He, I, I'm never broke. I'm always performing. I've always got music out there. And I'm always just doing my own thing without always needing to kind of jump on waves and shit. I think that's a better way to go, as opposed to appearing cool. That's what I would personally want. But again, you know, we're all different in that regard. We're all different in that regard. Uh, moving on from that one, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this. Oh, so so a little bit. So, this is courtesy of the amazing, amazing 
over and under Twitter account, which I always go on to get all my streetwear adjacent information and news. And they had this really amazing feature and throwback that made me kind of think fondly of the great and the powerful and the goated Virgil Abloh R.I.P. to the Dead. And this is an amazing kind of throwback because it's highlighting the famous Pyrex 23 flannel shirt from yesteryears that Virgil was anonymous, so it was flipping famous for um, and kind of essentially was a blessing and a curse in terms of how he was perceived as a designer because I think ever since this day, people kind of always looked at him with a bit of a corner of their eye like, oh, you're not really a designer. All you're doing is just slapping logos and pre-made shit, blah, 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 blah. But I also remember the time for me, this is the one time where I also wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of Virgil as a person. I remember this really triggered me at the time when this came out. And the reason why it triggered me was because I remember in this era of Virgil designing under the moniker uh, Pyrex Vision, before he had to change it because the Tupperware brand Pyrex told him to change it, told him to send him a cease and desist, which then led into um, Off-White, which I think the name Off-White came from ASAP 12 um, of ASAP Mobashi gave Virgil the name for the brand. And... Um, you know, from the kind of, you know, from the off, from the offshoot of Pyrex, basically, um, cooking that off white in those Pyrex flipping Tupperwares. And the funny thing is at that time, Virgil and everybody in that crew, they used to use this phrase, doing it for the kids, Heron Preston, Matthew Williams, um, J- Justin Saunders from Jound, all those guys always use that phrase, doing it for the kids, doing it for the kids. And I always found it very patronizing personally and a bit of an insult to my intelligence because everything they was doing was, everything but for the kids they were jumping on private jets driving around g-wagons and shit um you know buying fucking clothes that were like t-shirts that were 500 pound plus like selling fucking 700 pound flannels that were just printed on the side you know with this logo on it i just thought it was really patronizing to say that because how are you doing it for the kids or most kids can't afford the shit that you're making you're making your and in this case virgil what he did is that he went out and he bought these rugby flannel shirts that were soon to be discontinued he bought up the entire stock i think in north america he found the one place where all these shirts were bought out the entire stock so they essentially were not available and completely sold out and dead stock they're basically gone and then he essentially just placed the pyrex logo on the outside so on the back of the shirt with pyrex written on the top and 23 on the bottom the number of michael jordan and he didn't even change the buttons on the shirt so, you know, if it was me, I would have changed the buttons to pearly buttons or something, made them a bit more substantial, maybe would have added some pockets or something. There was nothing changed to the structure of the shirt, structurally, just the screen printing of the Pyrex on the top, on the back, sorry. And it made me think, like, how can you, with good conscience, buy these shirts for $30 and then charge 700 That's a fucking crazy markup, especially under the tutelage of, like, you know, you're doing it for the kids. But then over time... It became such a good way to market and to kind of push his design ethos of like that three percent, that three percent designing um, ethos thing that he had going on, and it also became like a really good thing to kind of sit back and kind of watch as his sort of design practice evolved over time. Especially once he started getting more resources and more access to information and whatnot, because then what you saw was that this was a beginning point. This wasn't what he was always going to do until the end of time. It was what he could do at the beginning because he didn't have much resources. He didn't, wasn't, he didn't have the ability to make his own shirts back then. So he went out there and got the best level, the best version of a rugby shirt and then applied his branding on top of it like any other good streetwear brand would do. So that made complete sense of it. But one thing I also loved about it is that Virgil kind of leaned into the meme. 
he leaned into the troll event kind of made it part of his kind of artistic expression he's part of his work part of his practice part of the way that he kind of spoke about clothes and i feel like he gave it a nice kind of um um veneer of protection because it was somewhat intellectual that's a very smart way to play it so instead of kind of trying to justify having the 700 dollar price tag on it you just frame it in a very intellectually honest curious artistic kind of way so that people can are forced to con confront it or kind of talk about it like an art piece as opposed to you just trying to make the most money you can out of these flannels you bought because most likely he probably didn't even spend $700 on all the flannels but you could sell one for $700 he's made a crazy amount of money so clearly that was an absolutely correct way to kind of do things and the funny thing I love about it is if you see courtesy of over under here they've got pictures of the shirt and pictures of some quotes here that were taken from I'm not mistaken a complex article that was kind of ragging on Virgil and he took the quote and basically put it on a carpet that he did with Ikea so imagine that flex so the beginning of your design career, the beginning of your fashion career, you start off making this flannel shirt where you print Pyrex and 23 on the back of it. You do a 700% markup on it, which is fucking crazy. You sell them for crazy amounts of money and you make loads of money in the, in the process. You do it under the tutelage or under the premise that is for the kids. Everyone laughs at you, says your shit. You can't design. You don't know what you're doing. Later on down the line, you become one of the most important designers of your generation. Your name is ringing in the streets. You're doing all the collaborations under the sun. You then become one of the first people in streetwear, really, to do a singular collection with fucking Ikea. And one of the flexes that you do is that you design a rug, a flipping piece, a carpet, right? That you can put in your house or you can frame on your wall. Again, the kind of flip on the artistic piece with this quote. It's highly possible Pyrex simply bought a bunch of rugby flannels, slapped Pyrex 23 on the back and resold them for an astonishing markup of about 700%. That is legitimately one of the greatest pieces of artwork I've seen living, especially when you go even deeper into it and you see that he's wearing his own off-white Air Force Ones and endless, you know, custom pair of endless denim deems that he may have done a collaboration with fucking, um, what's his name, with Young Lord. That is the biggest flex ever. To be standing on top of an Ikea, on Ikea carpet with the quote that was meant to kind of bash you from complex on it and a pair of your own shoes. Pièce de résistance. And then you move on again. You've got a picture of the shirts, which, you know, the, the, the flannel shirts themselves were pretty sick. Don't get me wrong. But I just think the idea of paying £600 for a flannel shirt that says Pirates and 23 on the back of it, it killed me. I could never do that shit. And if anything, the only really thing I, the only real thing I liked about Pyrex at the time was the activation. Having like ASAP Mob sort of like active, you know, basically part of the lookbook when it first launched, um, the shorts, the hoodies, I thought were really cool, but the flannel and stuff I was never really a big fan of. Even though it did do um flipping numbers in the streets and whatnot. So big up Virgil for that one and big up over and under kind of featuring it. We've got a couple more pictures here with some people wearing it. You got a picture here. I think I don't know who this is in the oh Jay Z in the studio wearing a, the shirt. You got ASAP Rocky wearing a shirt at a show. You got Kim Kardashian back in the day wearing a shirt. You got a picture of Kanye and Kim with Kim got the other shirt on again. So the shirt did numbers. It was really out there and doing crazy bits out there. And he also got a screenshot showing um the price of them right. So $35, you could buy it originally retail. And then it was selling on RSVP, which is, uh, funny enough, a store that Virgil was involved in. I think 
before he passed away, I'm pretty sure he sold his share in the store. It was a streetwear store based in, in Chicago, RSVP Gallery. And the shirt was listed as 600 I think, is it? $680 at the flipping, at the flipping online store, which is absolutely heinous. And there's a picture here of um, ASAP Mob, the famous fucking video um, where he launched Pyrex for the first time. This this video was fucking crazy when it went when it went viral, man. When I was kind of coming up in the scene, um, and the graffiti on the wall and shit. This was absolutely the bit. So big up Virgil for it. And then let's read the flipping caption, um, courtesy of Over and Under. It says the story of Virgil Abloh's Pyrex flannel shirt um, that redefined the standards of luxury. In 2013, Virgil Abloh, who was Kanye West's creative director at the time, sold out of the above flannel shirt and insane ticket of 550 a pop an exorbitantly high price for this product that sold out in literal minutes. The real, converse, the real controversy, however, is not the insane price, but the fact that the shirts were almost likely purchased at a retail from the Ralph Lauren Rugby. So from Ralph Lauren Rugby, who was going out of business at the time and had lots of models for sale. He then slapped the final with some decals and marked the piece up in hundreds of dollars. The original retailed for $79.95 and is currently on sale for £35.99. $35, sorry, 99 Regardless of what you think of the actual acts of the decision, I think this is almost commentary on our culture. It literally doesn't matter what the actual product is. If the correct hype and names are associated with it, anything can go. The rug in the first photo, um, in the first and last photo is from 2019 MCA Chicago. Virgil printed the fashion critics quote about his piece on the black rug that was made to be walked over and trampled on when he entered the show. The original quote da, 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 da. so it, it was a big flex i loved what he did with it um the funny thing about it though how i'm flipping criticizing it is that much many years later down the line even though i thought virgil was you know um not the greatest for doing that shirt and then kind of promoting the whole i'm doing it for the kids thing and trying to sell that shirt out a fucking in crazy 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 markup low many many years down the line guess what i did i went out myself and I decided to buy a shirt, a flannel shirt of the same type of design um, that was grossly over, you know, that was grossly overpriced as well in the same way that Virgil's thing was. And I was perfectly fine with it. I actually defended it. And I'm actually still pissed to this day that I ended up kind of misplacing it somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's somewhere in my house, but I can't flip and find it for love nor money. But I essentially went out there and purchased this flannel, this Balenciaga uh oh what's it this presenter is it, i think it's called padded flannel i had this for a while and if i'm not mistaken the retail on this flannel when i bought it might have been like 900 and if you know what i'm talking about it's a Balenciaga flannel that came out i think in 2017 i think so and um designed by demner of course and it's oversized but it kind of fits like a jacket but it looks like a, you know, it looks like a shirt. I think it's got it here. Um, Kanye wore it. Travis Scott worn it before also. It's this like oversized um, thing here. So many years later, after the fact, I purchased one of these Balenciaga oversized flannel shirts and I was perfectly fine with it. So I kind of loved the hypocrisy of me at the time complaining about Virgil slapping a 23 on the back of those shirts when I then went out and justifiably, I've got actually this, this flannel also. I've got this padded check shirt as well thing. I went out and justified buying these overpriced flannel pieces that I probably had no business purchasing because they were grossly, grossly, grossly overpriced. So maybe Virgil was onto something because maybe this is where Demner got inspiration to do his thing to kind of grab this, but without the logo on the back of it. 
and this is definitely one of my favorite pieces that Demna's designed when it comes to that Demna um, aesthetic being applied to Balenciaga. So R.I.P. to Virgil the Great. Um, designs live on far, you know, far past his flipping mortal being actually being here, and we're still flipping, debating, and arguing about all these things again and again and again. So that definitely goes to show that he left a crazy, crazy mark on the culture, man. So big up um, Virgil Abloh, gone but never begotten. Big up Virgil Abloh. Next, we move on from that one. We speak about this briefly. This is courtesy of Risen Advisor. One of my favorite DJs, DJ Fuckoff, has got a new album called Fuckatobi, which is going to be out on June 3rd. I'm very, very eager to check that out. This is courtesy of RA. It's a DJ Fuckoff releasing her debut album on June 3rd through Body Language Berlin. Fucktopia is a conceptual project spanning acid house, breakbeat hardcore, and bass heavy electro. There's also a guest feature from fellow Berlin artist Yazis, um, the collaborative EP with Jensen Helicopter and DJ MLG. The New Zealand born artist has also been able to perform a 30 hour Body Language Berlin party at the Trust next month. So, definitely looking forward to checking this out when it eventually does drop um dj fuckoff is definitely another really cool person that i kind of found out primarily through whore i haven't been a big fan of you know it's been difficult to find new djs and stuff but honestly that platform whore in berlin is the best place to find really cool up-and-coming people or just kind of local town heroes that you don't know about if you don't actually live in places like berlin you don't go out there week on week it's hard to find these people because there's just so many djs out there and around but honestly um dj fuckoff definitely one of my favorites that i've kind of seen if you haven't checked out some of her streams online please do um her mixes are fucking amazing um i think genre wise i like her because she kind of reminds me a lot of like london djs I feel like for some reason, outside of London, there's this real big, um, it's kind of looked down upon if you're like a multi-genre, whatever DJ, which I never understood because I always thought like you just play what you like. But I guess in some places, they want you to kind of define yourself and put yourself in a box like, oh, I only play techno. I only play disco. I only play house. Whereas growing up in London, one of the best things about coming out to clubs here is that people play everything. You can listen to somebody's set. They start off with R&B. They end with pop. They start with metal. They end with jazz. It doesn't matter. It's just what they're into. And it's up to you that if you like it or not. But it's not like you're going to hear somebody play only techno for an hour or for two. You kind of want it to kind of have like a a nice, rich, sort of like genre-less sort of like span and take you on a bit of a journey. Because technically, that's what groove means to me. Groove doesn't mean because it's a techno record that just has some melodies. Groove in a techno set means to me that you're actually playing different types of genre in what you would deem to be a technically, by you know, for lack of a comment, for lack of a flipping description, a techno set. So you're starting off with maybe something a bit ambient. You're maybe ending with some breakbeat, but you're taking it on some level of a journey because I can't just listen to somebody play techno hits one after the other for an hour straight. If I want that, I'll just make a playlist on Spotify. I don't need to sit there and listen to a DJ play it. So I'm really a big fan of how DJ Fuckoff plays because it reminds me a lot of how we play here in the UK. Loads of genres all over the place, having fun. I'm not taking stuff too seriously and I'm pretty sure the album's going to be that, especially taking it to regard this picture already. You already know what the vibes are going to be. So yeah, big up DJ Fuckoff. Literally, 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 literally big fan of hers. Moving on from that one. Uh, oh, Uche, go, go spinning now, but thanks for the stream, AZ. Happy birthday weekend. Appreciate you. No problem. Big up you and thank you so much. This isn't a birthday stream, by the way. I'm going to do that one properly. I'm probably going to do that 
on Wednesday. I'm going to do that probably on Wednesday. We'll do a little call-in, so I'll update everybody in the Discord. This isn't a birthday thing, by the way. Um, I'll do the proper birthday stream with everybody um, later on. So, yeah, um, check in with that one. If you're not part of the Discord, we're going to do a little birthday stream, and we're going to have people calling via the power of Discord, and we're going to do all that good stuff. So check in if you haven't already. Um, what was you talking about here? we are still shocked okay cool so let's talk about this oh um so what's that uh oh Natashki, yeah it was yesterday yesterday Natashki. yesterday was the b-day yesterday was the b-day yesterday 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 but i'm not really a big birthday person but i thought you know what let's just do a little live stream so we can do a little thing i mean um moving on from that one let's go this news here courtesy of ra it says here, we're still shocked. Nuremberg Club director opens following police raid. Nuremberg Club director Dirakati, or Dirakati, I don't know how you pronounce that, taking, um, reopened after being raided by the police last weekend. Taking place in the early hours of Sunday, May 14th, more than 100 police officers forcefully entered the club and made roughly 40 arrests. <laughs> imagine, imagine being in the depths of the K-hole and you've got a policeman flipping, flashing, a light in your face. <laughs> Holy shit. What a nightmare. Addressing the situation on Instagram, the following day, the club in Nuremberg encouraged attendees to come forward and make a statement on what it considered to be a heavy-handed, potentially unlawful operation. We hope that all the people who were present are doing that. Um, the the what you call it directees tom zitzman suggested that some of the officers in attendance were under the influence of drugs or alcohol themselves rotted so police officers came to the club drunk drunk and high themselves trying to arrest people for having a good time whoa the hypocrisy the lunacy um it says here, the stories we hear are always the same. People are specifically asked if they have, uh, if they've had any drugs from Directy. I feel like Pablo Escobar from Nuremberg as if we were hiring dealers. That would destroy our entire business model. Speaking of resident advisors, Zisman admitted that the team are still shocked from the situation. The club nevertheless decided to reopen just three days later, hosting a party with Sam Pagani, Pag, Paganini, sorry, um, Thomas, Schu Thomas Schumacher, who's a fucking incredible producer, by the way, um, on Wednesday, May 17th. Fortunately, we received a lot of support, which is, of course, makes us happy. Funny, isn't it? Club in Nuremberg, known for having a lot of dealers on the dance floor, gets raided by police. Then it's shocked when the police are asking everybody in there to take in drugs because usually a lot of dealers are in there. And then it's happy when everyone bands around and attends their club and, you know, makes them successful over the weekend. Funny how that happens, isn't it? But legitimately, I can't imagine a more scarier and a more off-putting experience to be in in my entire life. Being in a nightclub and having police raid it whilst you're in there, in the depths of your K-hole, on the pinnick, on the kind of, on the, on the edge of drunkenness, and then you're having a policeman flash his light in front of you, push you around, ask you questions and shit, it must be fucking terrifying. So everybody that was there, hopefully you're, you're, you're recovered. Hopefully you're still not shaking on the inside and hopefully everything kind of works out for you. I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that. Moving on from this, we've got this I want to talk about, which is a pretty cool little article courtesy of Resident Advisor. It's called The Art of DJing. This used to be my favorite articles and features they would do on Resident Advisor where they would highlight um, DJs in the scene and essentially talk to them about their practice, talk to them about how they approach DJing, um, how they approach playing, how they approach putting together 
sets and records and whatnot techniques tips tricks for someone like myself i fucking devour this shit i love all of it i fucking love it and dj courtesy here has some very interesting points of view that i was absolutely laughing my head off at some of her opinions and views here because i feel like these are some of the things that you could only kind of get away with if you have some level of success i think in some regards but let's just hear some of our point of views in it because it kind of blew my mind the pictures on the article are fucking amazing she looks really great in these pictures they're really well done i feel like dj pictures and dealers in general are sometimes some of the worst dressed people on earth right you have to look at you know people like Blauwine and what they're wearing day to day but legitimately djs look usually kind of horrible and um especially i feel like women djs if they're not dressed like fucking um you know go go girls or some shit they end up looking a bit weird if they're not dressed like kind of i beef a bottle girls they always look a bit strange in clothes but i feel like courtesy looks absolutely great here she styled really really well so one question here that really kind of blew my mind that made me kind of laugh was this one um here's this question here um is that the reason why sometimes you play tracks from start to finish without mixing the tracks together i know this has also been provoked some reactions online after your shows which we can talk about later but is that one of the reasons why you play full tracks now just to give you some kind of background this is an insane thing to do to play as a dj and to play an entire record from the beginning to the end without mixing them especially nowadays especially when you play with some kind of time constraints is could be looked at as a bit lazy and could also be looked at as a lack of have as a having a lack of um technical skill which i don't think it is because if you look if you think back to the days of the paradise garage or studio 54 of the detroit scene back in the day djs that's how they actually used to play they used to actually used to sometimes play i think david mancuso is a good version of it he would have one turntable and he would play a record a tune off of a record and then take it off and then play another tune so there was no mixing it was about playing interesting records. It was about having a good ambiance and a good scene, but it wasn't about the whole performance of a DJ, um, you know, uh, beat matching, mixing, channel switching, effects and shit. It was all just about, I'm going to program and sequence a list of songs that I like that are going to match the mood and they're going to take you on a journey in your nightlife. But nowadays... The fact that everybody's fucking hot hands behind the booth and they're playing records at kind of like two minutes at, at most to have the decision to be able to play the track from the beginning to the end is kind of brave. I'm not going to lie. It's legitimately hashtag brave to be willing to stand behind the booth and just let the whole track play from beginning to end, especially some of her more ambient type sounding records that Curtis has to play. They're really airy. There's a lot of space in between the notes and shit. That's that that seven minutes must feel long for the punters on the dance floor. It must feel worse if you're behind a booth. When you're playing behind a booth, one of the things you will notice is that time kind of shrinks. You can sometimes get rushed into mixes because you feel like you're playing a track too long. So the fact that she plays them from beginning to end, I have to give the girl props. But her answer is fucking insane. Here's the answer. Yeah, because they really work. A lot of music I choose has beautiful, ambient beginnings and intros. I love the dynamics and energy it creates to let them play full in the club. These ambient parts are also useful for going between different genres and tempos without having to use a pitch to drastically. Um, there are also some songs that I play twice from beginning to end in a set. There are songs that I have the most requests for because people don't even know what I'm playing the song, same, the same song twice. They'll just be like, wow, that sounds amazing. This is also has pre um, precedence historically. This is kind of like the early tape mixing and early vinyl where you would hear some Donna Summer track play being played on two record players or on tape players for a full half an hour. For a full half hour, sorry. 
people would go crazy, like really crazy. And I can definitely see that. There are certain songs that sound better second time you play it, right after you have just played it. I think that when there are elements in a song that you know you haven't been exposed to, your brain releases dopamine. It's a similar process of doing drugs. You can make some people feel like they are on drugs by playing a pop song every once in a while or playing a hardcore song that samples a pop song or samples a song from TV that shows like the Twin Peaks theme. It actually gives people physically pleasure, physical pleasure from the way that your brain works. And I use this a lot when I'm DJing. Number two, number one record, number one thing to talk about. This is privilege. To be able to play at venues that allow you the space to play records from beginning to end is a form of privilege. Because in my walk of life, in my, in me being a working class DJ playing in these fucking random bars and clubs, bro, if you don't play this right song for 30 seconds, you have somebody in your ear at the side of the fucking DJ booth asking you to play some Rihanna, asking you to play some fucking Beyonce. It's fucking annoying. So you're constantly having to battle between what you like, what the, what the fucking crowd likes, and creating a good ambience overall. So you don't have the privilege of playing some fucking Robert Glasper record for 10, 10 minutes. You can't do that. You have to play the hits, you have to play what makes sense, and you have to fucking get it going. That's what you have to get it going, honestly. So she's got privilege in that regard. The second paragraph that she mentions here about sometimes playing a pop record in a fucking set that's meant to be quote-unquote techno or electro acid house can be quite euphoric and kind of give you some sort of dopamine hit. I think she's right. People on the Berkheim subreddit like to really, really get on DJs who play like pop records in their DJ sets. I can think of Nini H being an example. I can think of... Um, Daria being an example. I forgot who it is. There's a few DJs out there who play at Berghain who like to play that kind of like LSDX, XOXO is a good example recently, who don't mind playing the odd pop record. They'll play Beyonce, they'll play a Beyonce remix, Britney Spears remix, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga. And you'd be lying. If you've ever been to Berghain, those songs, they absolutely tear the place apart. Why? Because typically in a place like Berghain or those kind of nightclubs, Everyone's playing really dark techno with no vocals, no melodies. It's all just boom, 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 boom. So when somebody from time to time plays something really light, really poppy, really cheesy, or even just a remix of it, right? Are you hearing a record that you've kind of known from your youth being sampled off of this kind of record? It fucking smashes it. People go crazy and they start singing along, hands in the air. It's such an incredible moment to see people go nuts over a record that they know, especially with vocals on the Berghain dance floor, because for the most part, it's a bit of a no-no to play any kind of vocal records in Berghain. Maybe Panorama Bar you do because it's more of a house and disco room, but Berghain you don't. So I understand why some DJs will take that risk and be like, you know what, fuck it. Even though the heads, even though the chin strokers, even though the guys on the Reddit aren't going to like this, I'm going to go for it. And by, honestly, I've rarely seen people walk off the stage, walk away from the, you know, from the dance floor. Mostly they walk away if the set isn't going great or if the person isn't mixing correct, whatever. But I don't see them leaving because a Nelly Furtado remix came on. They actually go crazy for it. So she's got a really good point on this, but I think some people are way too um, up their own ass and a little bit too uh, hipstery to kind of accept it or to be honest and say, no, even though you may not like it, those records do absolutely tear the fucking paint off of the fucking walls where they definitely do play. So, um, you know, I'm a big fan of that. 
So she says here, I find songs really precious. I don't play tracks so much as songs. I think this is a very important in terms of style of mixing I do because I like to think, I think a lot of dance music is made to be mixed. Which is right. I think to I, it'll be pretty d- d- tedious to hear a set, which I've heard many times, where people mix poorly. But I think the most annoying thing is people just playing annoying songs, which a lot of DJs do. You know the songs they, that you pick. It's not about choosing a style or anything. Particularly if it's anything that with emotions in it, I think it's an expression of your interest or your inner feelings. I think there are so many different expressions of DJing in the style of tracks that you pick or the songs or whatever. For me, what I focus on is the songs practically, um, the songs that make me feel fuzzy inside without having to take drugs or get drunk, you know? And to be fair, I like this. I like this. I like this perspective. I like this because this is very different from regular DJs out there. And it's also incredibly brave because m- many people can do this. Because it takes courage to literally stand behind the decks for seven minutes and let a track just play out and just vibe behind it and not be fiddling with the knobs and acting like you're doing something. It takes a lot of courage to play a record that you think a lot of people behind or at the back are going to be like look, making faces. It takes a lot of courage. So that definitely goes to show that she's very, very, um, she trusts her expression and trusts her taste level, which is fucking incredible to hear. So uh, we continue here. Another question I thought I liked the answer to was this one. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? I think it's not, no, not Alan Heap. There we go here. So, um, this question. I'm curious about the different reactions to your DJ sets have provoked in the past. We chatted about the DMs you've received because you've played Missy Elliott at the Nashville Festival. But earlier, you mentioned how a punter came up to you in Printworks and shared how a previous set of yours helped him through depression. Can you tell me more about the good and bad interactions you've had from track selection and the style of DJing it's provoked? Personally, for me, I think you are a real piece of shit if you're sending DJs DMs telling them you hated their set. It's okay if you're sending them DMs saying you liked it, but if you don't like it, keep your reviews to yourself or on your own platform, like I do with my reviews. My reviews and stuff, I keep it to the podcast, I leave it myself, but I'm not going under their comments telling them their shit or chasing them around the internet. I think that's really out of order and super cruel and not needed. If you actually feel good about it, of course, reach out to them. But if you feel bad, and you don't like it, keep it yourself or write on your own platform. You don't need to go and DM the person and tell them they had a horrible set. That's fucking awful to do. Anyway, her answer. Yeah, it's funny because I never used to get hate mail, like ever. And I didn't used to get people commenting hate. I would never get negative DMs. And that might be because there was a lot, I was a lot less famous. But I think also, I used to play a lot more by the rules. I was very in tune with the scene. I was very musically young, cool DJ, not playing business techno. That expression wasn't even a thing back then. So a young person playing not terrible music, basically. Playing whatever cool contemporary alternative dance records that was coming out. So essentially, the more of the culture you are, the less likely you're, you're, you're going to get hate. But then the more of the culture there are, the less actually unique you are as an artist or as a DJ. Your expression isn't that interesting because everybody is kind of playing the same tunes. And you only have to look at certain DJs, Instagram stories and shit, which I do all the time. And you'll notice a lot of DJs across Europe play the same fucking records, the same pop records, because they know it hits and it slaps on the dance floor. But what actually shows true courage and true artistry and really separates you from the fucking, you know, general public is your ability to actually trust, right? To trust and believe your process and really, 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 hold steady in it and do exactly 
what you feel like and what you feel like kind of describes you and kind of expresses you the best way possible. That's real, real, real artist shit. I love it. It continues. Now that's very different because I'm mostly researching older vintage records as in 90s and 2000s. That's what I'm practically interested in. I also just realized that it's re very, really rarely that people are truly doing something new. Now, she's kind of sounding a bit like, yeah, she's kind of getting in her bag, but she's sounding like her head's proper in the clouds. But I fuck with it. I love this energy because she's taking this shit really seriously and also saying, hey, I'm not like you motherfuckers. I may play in the same clubs as you guys. I may be in the same lineups as you guys, but I'm different gravy. I'm courtesy, right? Speak to me now, so don't speak to me at all. It continues. Pra uh, practically in the kind of techno that's very popular right now. I I'm just not that interested. I think that people that do really interesting things and not necessarily music, I would DJ. There is no lack of good producers or DJs or composers within dance music. But the ones I'm interested in artistically do not necessarily make that kind of music I would DJ. Which I think is true. And this is one of the things I've had as a really, as a kind of, as a, as a hurdle, I've kind of faced myself with music and with sometimes DJing. Sometimes I feel like my taste in the music I listen to which is weird to say this. I feel like my taste of music that I listen to day to day is far more interesting and technically better than the stuff that I play. I feel like the stuff that I play is somewhat a bit one note, but the stuff that I listen to day to day is all over the place. I could be listening to metal one day, jazz the next day, pop the next day, UK rap, drill, like it's all over the shop. But I feel like that is a far more interesting range of music and tracks and records to listen to and artists to follow than the stuff that i like to dj because it's all kind of the same if it's a disco set it's a disco set if it's electro set it's electro if it's techno it's techno if it's house it's house and it kind of just feels a little bit like you know after an hour or two it's like mm. but then i also remember the djs that i like that kind of challenged me and that kind of push that I kind of looked up to when i was kind of getting into this shit dj harvey who's known for playing the most wack wackiest of records all over the place. Ricardo Villalobos, same sort of thing as well. Like him on Lumpin, divides opinion. Boris, another good example, divides opinion, like him on Lumpin. All these people approach their DJ sets like as like an opportunity to kind of show off and showcase their taste in music, as opposed to just playing the bait, top 50, top 100, billboard tuned records they like. You know, a little bit, maybe. It continues here. I definitely think now I'm getting a lot more stronger reactions to what I do. Primarily, I get very cute love letters from wonderful, wonderful people. And then the occasional hate mail. But to be honest, it's really mild. Primarily, it's people being angry that I would play non-techno or non-tech house or whatever. It is that they think it's appropriate within the culture or whatever. Which again is fucking insane, man. If you're not doing your research on artists or DJs especially, because most of them have their fucking YouTube streams up on there, you're not searching or listening to mixes on SoundCloud, and then you're going to sets, you're going to parties, and then they're getting annoyed that they're playing the songs that you don't like, and then you're messaging them, you need to give your head a wobble. If you don't like something that you don't, you're hearing, leave the dance floor, go to the fucking toilets, have a bump, have a piss, take a shit, come back in later. Go to smoking there, whatever you must do. But one thing you don't do, don't message these people fucking hate mail. That's absolute R-worded. Like, leave it, leave it to your friends and family. Don't tell them. They don't give a fuck. 
It continues. Generally, different tracks and songs have different connotations in different cities, scenes and cultures. A lot of people that think that the rules they have in their head are universal rules everyone agrees with when it comes to what is okay to play at club night. I love these little flexes she's doing, man. I love it. She's kind of reminding everybody, look, I'm not like you guys. I play all over the world. I don't just mean I'm playing in like London and Paris and Madrid. Nah, I'm going to fucking Bogota, right? I'm going to fucking Peru. You know what I mean? I'm going to fucking Canada. I'm going to parts of Australia you haven't even been to. I love these little subtle things she's doing. Like, my passport is stamped up. Big up courtesy. She's fucking flexing hard here. Very, very subtly, but very flexing. Like, if you go to different cities around the world, you actually see it's actually different. It's not a universal language. <laughs> um, but what I experienced is that the track or the pop songs can be welcomed as a precious and love ode to the historical music moment in one city. And the same song considered trash in another. Some people seem to be more or less unaware of how much of the music they love and enjoy is influenced by and samples of music they seem not to want to hear. Yes! Amen, sister. A fucking men. That's the same thing that I kind of get with people. And again, this is a really strange tangent to go on because I'm not some BLM type of guy. I don't really fucking care about you know whatever that shit is all about i'm not here ranting about white supremacy but one thing that i kind of notice on scene one thing i've really noticed on scene there is a tendency in the scene in dance music of people saying they hate vocal records they hate singing they hate like you know like some house will sample like a choir or like a or like an r&b singer or something else on the record or the melody right they fucking hate it they hate vocals especially when it's coming from like a black singer or like if it's a rap record that's been switched you know remixed to be like a techno record or whatever and sometimes i look at and i think to myself is that like coded dog whistling that you don't want black people on the fucking dance floor is that the coded is that message of it like you get annoyed if like i don't know a dj starts off a fucking set playing some random 50 cent record people in the comments will be going crazy this isn't techno why are you playing you know fucking um 50 cent this is bullshit i'm like bro it's one record to start off the set let me get going first and then i'll start playing your dark shit later i'm not doing it because i want to get the clear the dance floor i'm doing it just to kind of reset the vibes and kind of start from a starting point but they don't like that and i wonder if there's a lot of it's a kind of weird coded message so they want all the essentially they want all the beats they want all the bass lines right they want all the hi-hats but they want none of the vocals none of the really this um none of the things that kind of really clock on that you see oh that's black influence no they want all the pared down stripped down nonsense of it it's kind of weird it's kind of weird. I don't know. I felt a little bit like that. I feel like, why are these guys so... Like, I've seen it before at Berghain. I've seen people in Berghain shaking their heads if somebody plays a record that's got vocals on it. A vocal record. They hate the shaking their heads. Like, oh, corny. Hacky. Lame. It's like, hacky and lame? What's hacky and lame? Why? Why? Huh? Let's continue. I just don't think you can be interesting artists and not make an, anyone angry. Oh, I like this. I like this quote. I like this line. I just don't think you can be an interesting artist and not make someone angry. Very, very true. It's not like I can clean. It's not like I'm cleaning floors, but I'm definitely taking chances. And I'm playing some songs because I'm using DJing to research which songs I'll be producing covers of. That way I can test which songs are meaningful to other people as they are to me. No, you know what? She's, you know what I like about this, this, this interview? She's complaining but she's not whinging. She's not whining. She's basically explaining her practice. Here's what I do. Here's why I do it. 
Here's why I don't like these certain things. Here's why I do things my way. If you don't like it, it is what it is. But I don't get a sense of like her complaining and whinging and crying like most people are. Like, for instance, I've researched, I spoke about that that DJ LSDXOXO. He got criticized by people that went to Bergheim because they didn't like he was playing all those pop records. And the first thing he did, oh, all these white cis, all these white cis males in Berlin hate me for playing Britney Spears. I'm thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on, bruh. You're performing at Bergheim. It's basically founded, you know, it was basically made as a quote-unquote safe space for the gay LGBTQ plus scene. The majority of people I'd imagine on that dance floor really going for it would be described as gay. They're not racist <laughs> because they don't like that you're playing a shitty Katy Perry edit. They just don't like the Katy Perry edit. But if you stand by it, stand by it. But he went immediately to the defense of, oh, they're racist, which was really in bad taste. But she's doing it like, look, the hate mail is what it is but i would prefer to be like she's saying here she wants to be an interesting artist and if you're an interesting artist she says you it's impossible not to make someone angry which is really true it continues obviously the style of djing like choosing not to mix every song can give people some pretty strong reactions it's really interesting for instance i played in paris recently and it was one of the best gigs i've ever had in my life it was really surprising because there was someone who wrote to me and commented how I could play such a great party and not properly mix. And this was because I was playing the songs from beginning to end and the room was on fire. Figuratively speaking, it's the kind of surprising that people don't see as a choice when I mix or if I don't mix. It's funny, isn't it? Like DJing is such... It, it might, as much as I love DJing, I'm still honest enough to say it's legitimately the lowest level of musical expression anybody can do it the entry level is fucking on the floor midi controllers are like 50 pounds these days you can dj off your fucking phone you're playing other people's records other people have slaved in the fucking studio have you know had faces full of fucking sweat hairs turned gray gone bored divorce families broken up gone broke to make these records that you're playing in clubs that you're just playing press and play with but people get so precious with it. So precious. Play it this way, play it that way, play it this way, play it this way. When really, it's the lowest form of musical expression. But people get so up there and ask about it. So I actually like the fact that she takes these chances and is willing to go the opposite route by playing songs. All, and the only thing she's doing that's so like out of this world and it's getting people all hot and bothered is that she's playing the record from beginning to end. <laughs> So we, you've got two things. You've got a class of people who say, don't mix them too quick. Because I, I remember I used to get this reaction sometimes too to my mixes. Check out my mixes actually on my SoundCloud. I would get a reaction on my mixes that I mix the records too quickly. Like I don't spend enough time let the record breathe. But then on the other side of things, you've got somebody telling her, you're playing the record too long. <laughs> you can't win. I am definitely doing this on purpose. You, uh, you cannot like it which i like this quote and that's fine that's how it should be always please it's the internet it's social media people are going to react like i said don't send anybody fucking hate mail they don't like what they do if you don't like what they do vote with your feet don't go to their parties don't buy tickets don't listen to their music but you don't need to go and send them dms that is in my opinion super r-worded leave them alone if you want to make a comment like i do on your own platform do so but don't dm them but also you should be allowed to hate if you want to but it should not affect the artists and what they're doing. They should be allowed to kind of create in a sort of inner vortex, essentially. Um, and I like how her perspective in it. You cannot like it, and that's fine. 
I personally find it very annoying when people put a ton of effects on everything because I think I I think it can not always show an insecurity towards the music you play. Oh, I like this. And the insecurity of standing in front of people because you know, as I'm saying, with the hot hands, I believe in the songs. I don't think I do think they work. I trust my selections. Yo, man, this girl is fucking awesome. I love Kirsty. Kirsty's got Kirsty's fucking head is screwed on crooked. This makes a lot more sense why she's fucking as successful as she is now. Because she's basically a very rare, <laughs> a very rare case in like a DJ that's actually got a brain, that actually speaks really well, is very eloquent, has a point of view, is able to express that point of view behind the decks, on turntables, playing other people's music, and has created a fucking cult-like fan base around her. I think her sets, even the whole ones, are like approaching the millions of views. And you listen to some of the, the sets, it's like, it's not for me personally, but you're like, rah, people actually love this stuff. They love this girl. She's really carved a little lane, a little kind of avenue for herself with people that actually fuck with her super heavy. So I fucking love the interview. I love how she's kind of um, perspective on it. And the pictures of the thing look crazy too. Yeah, the Hot Hands mix is actually amazing as well. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, big up her. You can listen to the, watch the whole thing. I won't read the whole entire interview here because I don't want to bore you guys to death. But there is courtesy there. Um, great pictures of the actual absolute interview. Big up Resident Advisor putting this together. They, they got someone who styled it. No, they don't have a person who styled it. But whoever did style her this day, or maybe she did it herself, did really well. The pictures came out really cool as well. Like I said before, DJs don't usually look cool in their little press shots and whatnot. But she looks really great here. And yeah, I'm loving it. Art of DJing featuring courtesy check it out on ra it's really cool and i really like her perspective on djing overall and i think i may actually try one day to actually do that to run through a set entirely and just do it with just the set the tunes playing from beginning to end and see what i'll go on see if i really kind of trust my process and shit let's see how that kind of runs i'm actually going to try actually maybe my, my next mix i'll do it where i play all the records from beginning to end that's gonna be a fucking vibe i can't wait to get that started so yeah big up courtesy really cool interview she comes across fucking amazing and can't wait to see more from her as she evolves and develops as a dj Next on the list again about DJing stuff, we've got some sad news courtesy of London promoters for the most part, Secret Sundays. They've unfortunately announced that they're going their separate ways. Secret Sundays founders Giles Smith and James Presley will go their separate ways after 21 years. So recently they had their anniversary where they celebrated um, their anniversary with this amazing video, 20 years of Secret Sunday, which I'm going to end a bit of the podcast with. But they did. Um, I guess that was uh, the point where they decided, you know what, let's hang it up. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of my time promoting when I was kind of putting on my little party so special back in the day um, with my friend that I was doing it with. And unfortunately, towards the end, it kind of like, you know, led to the demise of our friendship, which is really unfortunate. Um, but I think the reason why is because we didn't really hang it up sooner. We kind of just let it kind of die by itself. We kind of didn't step away from the party or try and reinvent or try and do cool, interesting things. We just kept doing the same thing, hoping that it would kind of pick up again with a new audience. And sometimes you can't. You have to kind of evolve. You have to change. You have to adapt. And we really didn't do that and eventually ended up dying and we ended up really not really speaking to each other anymore. But I also think it's incredibly difficult to do something with somebody for that long or for forever and ever. It has to had it kind of always has a bit of a shelf life. And I feel like Secret Sundays did have done the best because at the time that they were around, 
I think that was just time that I was going out. I started maybe going out maybe when they started. Because I remember they used to do raves at, the, at like the Peanut Factory back in the day in like East London. If you know, you know about that venue. And I kind of known about them in the scene for many, 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 many years. And the fact that they still were able to do what they were doing at the level they were doing it at, still being close friends, not publicly falling out. Maybe they have it behind the scenes, who knows? It's a real credit to them as people. It kind of shows that they're proper sound individuals. And I like the fact that they both decided to just, you know, let's just step away and do our own thing separately. So maybe one person may decide to go produce and start doing other parties. Maybe the other person is going to go be an artist or be a DJ, whatever it may be. Or maybe just one person wants to start a family. I like the fact that they both decided no, we need to take a break. We need to stop this collaboration for now. We've told the story we need to tell. We've done what we need to do. And in a way also, even though it's not the right thing to say, I also like the fact that in a way, symbolically, you're kind of making room for new people. It doesn't really make sense because, you know, the whole room thing is a bit of a naff argument. I feel like if you have some, if you have an expression, if you have a point of view, if you have something that you feel like is needed out there, you should do it anyway. You shouldn't care about if it's quote unquote crowded. But I also feel like there are only certain amount of parties out there. There's only a certain amount of people out there, only a certain amount of clubs out there. And sometimes it could be nice to have some room and some space to kind of do your thing so you can have the chance to kind of grow and build your audience. So maybe this will be a chance other people to kind of step in and do their thing but also like towards the end i feel like secret sunday towards the end especially the last 10 years or so they went out their way to really kind of have a whole roster full of djs they worked with who were kind of young and up and coming which really surprised me at the time it's like rah they're not really booking themselves all the time they're actually getting loads of like new up and coming people or like old fogies that they're actually like adapting and doing it in a in a somewhat um not even like a it wasn't like they're trying to appease people it wasn't like they're trying to like take some sort of like you know gendered um quota or like sexual orientation quota they were legitimately doing it from like love from like okay cool let's let's get this person on this person's got a cool sound let's platform this person like it kind of felt really fresh and really new which maybe allowed them to kind of have the last few years in the sun and be able to kind of make that work but anyway let's go to the article it says Giles peterson Giles Peterson, I keep saying his name wrong. Giles Smith and James Presley, the duo, the duo, duo behind a much-loved London promoter, Secret Sundays, are going to separate after 21 years. We've each been through a lot of personal change and growth recently. So after all these years of service together, felt a desire to move forward with some more creative and personal freedom. Um, we, when we started the party uh, with Christoph and Will back in 2002 on Brick Lane, yeah, I remember when this, this is fucking crazy. I remember when this started. Um, little did we think that we'd be here two decades later. There was no master plan and it was flowed and very, it felt very natural. It's been a truly beautiful ride and we feel genuinely blessed to have been the trusted pilots. Smith has left a focus on creative projects, including more production and a solo NTS radio residency, while Presley will take full creative control of Secret Sundays. According to the Post, he'll build on principles and foundations, but bringing them together to present. Okay, cool. So Secret Sundays is an ending. They're just going separately. That makes sense. So one person is going to continue doing Secret Sundays. The other person is going to continue doing their own thing solo, which is pretty cool still. And it means that Secret Sundays could then evolve into another thing. It could be, you know, maybe they take a step back and it's not even them in, in front of it. It's a whole cast of people. I fucking love it. Now there's 21 years. Secret Sundays is a film. Celebrated. Those are the two founders there. And they've also got some more parties happening throughout the time that I probably will end up having to check out recently. But... Um, they also released this really cool video detailing the last 20 years of Secret Sunday, which I'm going to play here courtesy of their account um, on Secret Sunday's YouTube. 
And I thought this is a really nice and really well put together flipping documentary that kind of, you know, spanned the kind of history of what they've been doing and spoke to some people involved with them behind the scenes and whatnot. So let's play a bit of this before we end the show. It's doing what feels right from the heart and not being too set out on, on a plan to do this or do that in terms of how we move musically. I think authenticity has been key to us. We've always done things we always say for the right reasons and acted in a way that we feel is, is honest and respectful and true to what we believe in. been around 20 years now and we've seen a lot of trends come and go we've seen a lot of artists come and go we feel like we've always just tried to stick to doing what we feel we do best in the best in the best possible way Shit, I'm muted again. So, <laughs> slide again. Uh, seen those pictures and videos of those guys on the screen that are featured here. It kind of reminds me of the era when I used to go to parties and I would feel like I was a resident in-house videographer and picture taker, right? I'd be in there taking pictures of people, living a hedonistic life and shit, loads of flash photography, Think of like, you know, Cobra Snake type style of, you know, taking pictures and shit, gallivanting around town. And that was the shit that I did back then. This was where I was doing. I was doing, taking these kind of pictures all the time. And it reminds me a little bit of the time there was this party also that Secret Sundays used to do called Love... No, not Secret Sundays. There was a other promoter called um, Love Fever. They had this, this, this party called Love Fever that I used to always go to. It was one of the best fucking disco parties i ever been to in my life like really amazing um the guys behind it one dude called alex bradley and another dude they basically went out of their way to kind of curate a space um you know to kind of you know curate the space and make it their own they would kind of install this amazing lighting in there they'd have cool balloons i've actually got a, an album of them i flicker here this is i don't know what year this was have been from i don't know what year it was but many many years ago i'd be at these fucking raves and they'd have these amazing balloons at the top of the fucking functions that they'd have there's incredible lights all red ambience they have a really bespoke sound system put in and that party was fucking incredible one of the best i've been to and unfortunately that also died because the two founders kind of went their separate ways but i think it wasn't amicable it definitely ended in a bad way and um the, you know the party definitely didn't kind of evolve and kind of live with the times but this is just around the same time that secret sundays were around doing their thing I was going to these fucking, you know, warehouse raves in the middle of London somewhere in these kind of like repurposed spaces, um, listening to some amazing records. They'd be booking like people like Moody Man and stuff be playing there. And I'd be in there taking these fucking pictures thinking I was fucking a couple of top, which is fucking cringe and really embarrassing. But this is the life that I used to live back then. So yeah, big up um, Secret Sundays for reminding me of that. 
we were supposed to have like a, a three hour like production rehearsal which turned into more like a half an hour line check we were kind of banking on on that time to really kind of run through everything and make sure we were all gelling as a band and was ready for it a lot of the nerves came from the fact this was like such a new experience for me and, and on such a big stage and such a marked date of our 20th anniversary year and stepping out on the stage suddenly brought the whole thing home James and I met at school when we were about 15, so I guess back in about 1992. But quite quickly, uh, we kind of worked out we were both sort of into sort of dance music. That maybe explains why they were able to kind of work together for so long and why they could come to an agreement, hey, we're going to take it to separate directions and then not be like beef because they've known each other since they were fucking 15. You know what I mean? Even if you do beef along the way, you know each other intimately and you can have actual honest conversations, which I couldn't at the time with the person I was doing the, the party with because we met each other a bit later in life and there was loads of things that we came into the quote-unquote business relationship with that we probably didn't deal with in our own. And just in general, like, lack of communication, letting people get in between us and shit kind of ruined that whole shit and maybe just individually doing some bad things. But I think that an inability to just talk frankly to somebody because you know them really well kind of essentially led to our demise. But this explains why they've been together for so long. Started going to our first raves in East Anglia, which was at the time, it was quite a hotbed for that scene. And also sort of early trips to like Ibiza as well were big kind of influences on what we do. James had already been promoting some events in Nottingham. A few of us came together, wanted to put on a party for our friends. There was no real kind of master plan. Uh, it was really like, you know, we've got our music, got our records, we've got a bunch of friends let's find a great space and celebrate life and come together and, you know, put on a party. The name Secret Sundays came about, a few different strands kind of came together, so we were looking for a venue for a long time um, until we actually found 93 Feet But that venue was only available to us on a Sunday afternoon, on a Sunday, basically. 93 Feet East as a venue is, like, tucked away just off Brick Lane, Back then it was quite an unknown, it wasn't really like a, a major spot. And we got in, into the idea of doing something on the Sunday. The, look at the era. That, that was the, the, this is the era that all the kids are now wearing, right? The, all the era, the, the kids now are into this. The Gen Z kids want to look like what we looked like back then. <laughs> That's the funny shit. Back then, in this era of like that, what's that early two thousands time? Like I, I don't know. I'm thinking American Apparel. I'm thinking Vice. I'm thinking Protein Studios, ninety three feet east. I'm thinking Brick. Like it's fucking incredible how cyclical shit is, isn't it? It all comes back around. But every, all the kids now look like this. All the kids look like this now. Like fucking massive glasses, big hair, um, bedazzled tops, um, crop tops, uh, trucker hats funny glasses like just you know random accessories accruitments and whatnot they all look exactly like this and the other thing that made me laugh as well this is 93 feet east if you know anything about 93 feet east now in brick lane it's now essentially the pinnacle of the home the mecca of like chavs and like tech house people and business techno it's a really commercial kind of normie type of venue but when it first started it was actually kind of um I don't know, it was kind of conventionally hipster. 
but now it's got a completely different sort of clientele. So it's had it's had many different sort of like iterations over the years. But you could never see these type of people there anymore because you know it's not the cool place to be. But ninety three feet east was quite cool in that way because it was like a little it's like a little walkway type of vibe, and it kind of felt like you were outside, but you kind of also had the ability to put covers over to make it feel like you were indoors. So you could have a kind of open air type of event that you don't really have here in London too often because usually people always complain about the noise. But big up, big up. So we started parties here in May 2002 when we first started and we did a whole summer which took us up to about September time and then we came back the following May after like a whole break. The Alpha Industries bomber jacket is fucking hard. Fucking hard. Over the winter and the May bank holiday and that was when kind of things really started kicking off. I think it was the whole winter and no one... Everyone had been like starved from their fix of Secret Sundays and everyone had been coming over the previous summer had been telling all their friends about it. And then we only did one or two parties that year and then we lost we lost the venue. We had to better move. At the time there was loads of good spots around here that was like untapped and like, you know, especially moving more into the city, which is very close to here. A lot of spaces weren't used at the weekend, so like other venues that we used like the Poet and Light Bar were just generally closed at the weekend, so like they were they were prime for the taking for us. When I started playing for Secret Sundays, it was the year that they started. And I remember the first party I did for them. It was absolutely amazing. It was at nine. Cosmo, big up, big up Cosmo, the fucking legend. Me three feet east. I just felt really free. I felt like I was able to play whatever I wanted to play. The crowd was wonderful. They were right there in our hands. Yeah, Tashki's right. They do, yeah, Tashki's right. They do look related, don't they? I guess what happens, it's like being in a relationship. When you're in a relationship with someone long enough, you end up sounding like you end up having the same sort of vernacular, same type of, you know, the way you pronounce shit. And you end up looking like each other as well. And the same thing goes for friends. You end up hanging around your friends too often. You end up actually looking like each other. Or maybe the same with people like and their pets, their dogs and their cats and shit. You end up looking like, <laughs> you end up morphing into the same person. I don't know why, but yeah, they're actually not brothers. They're just really lifelong, li- long, lifelong friends. It just felt really natural. It felt really fun. And it, was, it felt like a party and not a club night. And I think that's really important. Yeah, good quote. It felt like a party and not a club night. That's basically the best review you'd want. Like what some of the best reviews I ever get from the podcast is usually people say, I always put it on in the background. That for me is the best, best, best review because that's the main reason I listen to podcasts all day because I can't have silence. So I always have shit on in the background. And if it's terrible, I'll be like passively listen to it. So if it's terrible, I'll turn it off. But if it's good, I'm actively and passively listening to it at the same time. So in some ways you can see it as a slight, oh, they're only, they're not paying attention to you. They're just listening in the background. But no, the fact that they're trusting me and listening to me the entire way through and trusting me with their time and their day is the best review. The same thing goes for the parties. You actually want it to feel like a party, not a club night. A club night is sterile. A club night is just booking the, the bait person who's number one on the list, who can sell the best amount of tickets, who's right on trend with the music going on. But creating a party is harder, but also is a better review because a party is about the people that go there, really. It's really not really about the DJ. It's about the vibe, the community that you have, um, the spaces that you're repurposing, how you're programming things, all those things that maybe go outside of booking the bait dj that's what creates a good party so if i had someone would, would say that to you as you know for the nights that you're putting on it's actually the best compliment you can ever give somebody oh 
on it, and they definitely sorry again, they definitely some of the best reviews. That's so the best flyers on the scene. But again, artistically, like artistic, you know, uh, vision and whatnot, and branding is top notch when it comes to Secret Sunday. It's really, really well done. Really well done. The poet ran for like all of the second year and a couple of few, some parties in the third year. The party was illegal anyway. The landlord of the pub that we threw the party at had basically been grassed up by some kind of posh neighbour, lots of money, they had spoke to the council, so we had to stop doing the party. We actually met a young lad at the party whose father was the, the, the main leaseholder who was renting out the pub to the landlord. And he's like, hey guys, I've got the keys to the terrace. Should we break in and do one? You know, we were like, yeah, why not? We were, you know, that just excited us even more at that point. Community's been really important to Sunday over the last 20 years. That's kind of how we started. And different friend groups started forming at the party. And whenever someone asked me, oh, how do you know that person? I'm like, through Secret Sundays, you know. My current girlfriend, we actually had our first kiss at Secret Sundays. But 15 years later, I see the same faces. I see new ones. That's kind of cool, right? That's really cool, to be fair. Not going to lie. Kind of corny, kind of cheesy. Once you make you vomit in your mouth, but that's really cute. Lots of DJs kind of keep coming back and playing and you probably get the best house music in London at this party. So it's now been five years that I've been going to Secret Sundays. My first party was not too long after I got to London, actually. And one of my good friends, uh, who's also from Spain, uh, took me there. It was just amazing. Um, the from Spain. I could not tell from Spain. Big up, big up. The whole clubbing scene in Spain is quite different. It felt like such an inclusive environment. I just absolutely loved it and it made me want to keep on going. We know what we like to do and how we like to do things and the people we like to surround ourselves with and that includes like, you know, booking talent and stuff. The first time we met was in Australia. Me and Giles was like, ah! I think it was at this place in Melbourne called the Meerkat. So ever since then, they they told me, and it was like, man, we're going to bring you to London. I was like, okay. Got a call from my agent. And you know, Secret Sundays, I was like, oh, wow, I remember those guys. Who we invite is obviously really important on a musical level, but also from a, on a personal level. There's a real core root of what we do. That isn't really following fashion or trends, you know? And I think that's something that has held us in good stead across these years. When I came here uh, to study for university, I discovered the clubbing uh, aspect of London and Secret Sundays was in fact one of the key parties uh, through this uh, uh, school of electronic music that I went through here, just as a clubber, you know. Still now, I really love them because they still represent the same values that they were representing 20 years ago. Our mantras, uh, Hearts Not Hype and True Dance Music Spirit, are kind of terms that I coined writing press releases, trying to describe our parties. You know, True Dance Music Spirit, first of all, there's in many ways you can interpret that. We kind of meant it from a, a musical angle in terms of referencing the past, referencing the roots of kind of black, gay, dance music, but also equally thinking about, you know, the roots of the rave scene in the UK, which we're very much, you know, feel we've sort of come through. The word authenticity kind of really relates to all of that, doing things for the right reasons. Mm. 
In terms of true dance music spirit, it's really about the way we try to carry ourselves, the way we want the energy in the party to be, the way we welcome people, love and warmth and openness. We like to genuinely meet people and welcome people to the party and introducing new people to what we do, whether that's through the label, for our events or for our DJing. We did a- but yeah, so I'm not going to play the whole thing because it's about 15 minutes long, but big up, big up Secret Sundays, big up Giles, big up James, um, wishing them all the best on their journey forward. Very inspiring story. Got me kind of wanting to go and start up another party again and get it going once more. But promoting is legitimately one of the most hellish jobs on the face of the earth. Um, all promoters out there who are doing a great job or even doing a bad job, I salute every one of you because getting people to actually leave their homes and to you know, to buy tickets, first of all, to leave their homes and attend your parties on any given weekend is one of the hardest things to do. And the fact that there are so many people out there willing and, and ready to put their money, lives, reputation on the line to kind of tell a particular story or to try and cultivate a particular type of scene and community around what they do just for the love of the music, because most people don't make money. You're always doing it for the fucking love, especially in the beginning. So if you do make money in the end, fair play to you. If you get brand deals, all good you know do your thing you're never selling out in that regard because it doesn't pay well in general so you're always doing it for the love you're always just investing the money you do you take make from your full-time job or from djing full-time and you're investing it all into parties and sometimes you don't even break even sometimes you operate at a loss like i've done it we've done it previous times we need to put on raves you'd be booking djs and you wouldn't even make this amount you'd be booking a dj for 500 pounds you don't even make 500 pounds at the fucking bar but you just did it just for the just for the bands just for the fucking you know just for the fucking um rave just for the vibes and all that malarkey so love to see it um hopefully secret sundays does continue on in its current iteration even if it's just a singular voice and it changes into something else and maybe it's presenting different people maybe the sound evolves but i actually like the fact that if you want a quintessential house disco-y type of party secret sundays is always the easiest and most safest option to go to because you know exactly what you're going to get always a good time always interesting bookings um, always in cool interesting spaces um, maybe it was all by kind of you know it was all by default because they had to keep hopping around because venues kept closing but i like the fact that they will take a chance on the space like i think if i remember correctly they may have made the, they may be have made i forgot what that studio in london in north london is called but there's some studio in london it's all white I think they were probably the one of the first promoters to actually make that pop in. A lot of these spaces that people weren't using, like photography spaces and shit and whatever it may be, they would repurpose those spaces as clubbing places. And usually the spaces would be like in random areas in London that people don't usually go to and they would make them pop in. So they really do um, deserve a lot of credit for kind of spearheading that kind of movement to going out there and looking at new spaces, not just kind of only putting your raves on in clubs because, you know, there's not a lot of clubs. So there's more spaces that you can find to repurpose and make that work, but it's obviously a big gamble. But anyway, regardless of that, big up them. They have some more parties lined up here in London. I think I went to check out here quickly here on the list that they have coming up. Um, they've got a Secret Sundays all-nighter at the Pickle Factory happening on the 10th of June. They've got Secret Sundays in Barcelona featuring Alex Cassian, Chaos in the CBD, Nix, um, Paqueta Gordon, who you, who you heard on that video, which is fucking sick, um, playing in Barcelona on 17th of June. And then they've got another party happening in Hackney Wick, um, presents Multi Multi featuring Adam Pitts, Adriana, Annie Phoebe, Anu, a few other people on there the list as well um, on January 8th. So definitely check that out. That'd be definitely, definitely amazing. I cannot wait 
for them to see what they're going to be doing going forward. But definitely an incredible legacy left behind. And definitely they've shown people how to do it the right and correct way. And they still remain friends. It's still a cool little partnership going on there. Love in the air. They're still going to do their own thing creatively. I fucking love it. Because, you know, in my experience, it didn't end that way for me. It didn't end that way for me. Anyways, it's now been three hours plus of me ranting and raving. Thank you so much for those of you who've tuned into this podcast live if you've watched it live i appreciate you if you're still watching this live make sure that you smash that like button for me that we greatly appreciate it for those of you listening to this after the fact you shall hear my tune of the day my song of the day playing underneath me as i'm speaking right now so if you want to hear what my song of the day is please make sure you subscribe to the podcast via all the podcasting platforms like apple spotify and all that malak you'll be able to find it there and if you're listening to this via the podcast app and you do enjoy what you heard make sure that you leave me a five-star review on all the platforms that you leave podcasts on because that would help me grow and let people know that people are enjoying it and obviously it will allow me to have some level of dopamine here because guess what I can't get it on the can't get on it anymore. So I need some dopamine hit. So if that dopamine hit comes from that, I'm a happy. But anyway, regardless of that, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate every single one of you for being here. It's been a great one. Big up the chat. Big up Natashki. Appreciate you. Big up Frank Duxon here as well. Crash, I see you there, and a few others. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you guys again very, very soon. This has been the Agassino Zinga Show, episode number six seven five, I think. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you guys again very, very soon. Take care, be safe, my friends, and peace. I'm going